you can take seemingly an average person and you can turn them into something extraordinary. And if you take an extraordinary person, what you will find is that they have gone through some kind of process to make them that way. You're always using the instrument of yourself. And once you start teaching people those things, you see an astronomical improvement in basically like all dimensions of their life. Happiness, income, life satisfaction. Studied to become a monk, trained and taught at Harvard Medical School. I'm a clinician. I've done neuroscience research. Can you cure depression? The scientific answer is... Thank you very much, Dr. K, Alok, or Healthy Gamer, GG. Sure. You have came on the Iced Coffee Hour podcast. You do these things where you psychoanalyze other massive creators. You've done it for like Ludwig. You've done it for XQC. Who else? You've done it for Destiny, for all of these people. Mm -hmm. And they are so fascinating. And I'm noticing amongst like those ultra successful people, they are uniquely special or different in the way that their brain works. Have you noticed this? I mean, so all these people are outliers, but I, I think the, the really interesting thing is that, you know, when, when I talk to these people, and for the record, I don't psychoanalyze them, like psychoanalysis is like four hours a week for like years and years and years. That's really mm -hmm. what psychoanalysis is. But I think that if you look at like, generally speaking, human beings, we share a lot. Like the fundamental nature of the way that our mind works, the way that our brain works, like we all basically have the same parts of the brain. All of the parts of the brain do the same things. And in some people, the activity levels of different parts of their being, their personality, their brain, call it whatever you want to, are just at different places, right? And so that's what really creates an outlier. I mean, there may be some genetic differences, of course, but I think generally speaking, my experience has been overwhelmingly that you can take seemingly an average person and you can turn them into something extraordinary. And if you take an extraordinary person, um, what you will find is that they have gone through some kind of process to make them that way. And like, that was the experience of like my life, like absolutely. So they just weren't born as an extraordinary person. I mean, so it depends on how you define extraordinary. So like you can look at IQ, for example, and you can say like all, all these people probably probably have super high IQs, but like there are a lot of people in society who have the same level of IQ that's like, let's say streamers have, or, or people who are very successful. Um, and interestingly enough, there's even some data that suggests that high IQ on on the whole correlates with like success up until a point. But if you're very, very high IQ, there's some evidence that suggests that it's actually very hard to be successful. Is that why uh, gifted kids are often special needs? That was one of your most viewed videos. Yeah. So this was something that blew my mind when I was in residency training. I had a supervisor one time that told me that like, you know, gifted kids are like special needs kids. And that kind of blew my mind. And I asked her, like, what do you mean by that? And so she started ex explaining this to me. And then I sort of realized it. And I realized that this is what had happened to me. So if you think about a child who's gifted, right? So let's say that you're in like the top one or 2% of IQ. Um, the first thing to understand is that your experience of school is going to be very different, right? So kids who are very smart literally have needs that are different from the average kid. So if we look at academics, so the school moves at the pace of the slowest child, right? If we mm. look at our school system, what's it designed to do? Schools are not places where we take kids and we try to have them live up to their fullest potential. Kids are places, if you look at like the mandates around schools, it's about like leaving no child behind. So the system is, is sort of designed to take the worst performing kids and kind of like make sure they're doing okay. So if we look at like special education at schools, what is special education for? It's the, for the kids who are struggling, not the kids who are bored. And this is what tends to happen with kids who are super smart is that they get bored with school. Um, 
I remember when I was like in the first grade, I, you know, my math teacher gave me a worksheet and she was like, here's the worksheet. And so I did the worksheet and I walked up to her and I said, here, I, like 10 minutes later, I gave it to her and I was like, can I have the next one? And she's like, what do you mean the next one? This is what we're doing today. And so school is incredibly boring. And then what tends to happen is that these kids start to like flounder in a lot of ways. They get distracted in a lot of ways. They become uninvested in education. Mm -hmm. The other problem that they run into is that if you're a kid who does really well in school and you're not challenged, you don't develop study habits. So this is a really common problem where what happens is you're at the top of your class in the first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, you hit high school, and now suddenly you need to study. And you haven't developed any study habits, and you literally do not know how to study. So what you'll see is this like tanking of GPA for kids who have high IQ. As they reach the natural point where their, in their raw intellect is no longer sufficient for like learning calculus, right? And so these are the kinds of needs that kids have that we don't sort of recognize mm -hmm. um, when they've got high IQ. There's also other kinds of data. So if you look at like uh, the, the rate of depression, so if you look at the prevalence of depression, about 9.5% of people on a given day will be depressed. If you look at people who are in the top 2% in terms of IQ, it's 36.6. And so it's like staggering that like, you know, these kids, while they're gifted in many ways, we sort of think about IQ as just sort of a straight positive, which I think if you have an environment that is conducive to it, it probably is. But taking a smart kid and putting him into an average world is something that is like oftentimes very, very difficult. Yeah. Do you think that homeschooling is a solution to that? I mean, it could be, but you're, we have to presume that the people who are doing the homeschooling know how to provide for the special needs of, of the kid who's super smart, right? Sure. One thing that I think is rare that shouldn't be so rare is kids moving up and going down in grades. Because I was just talking to my brother's friend who went up four grades in elementary school, and he said, because he was so bored that he, like you said, couldn't develop those study habits because he wouldn't need to study for those exams because he could rely on his raw intelligence. And then once he went up four grades, he actually fit the general like IQ of the, or not the IQ of, but like, you know, he would need to study the, the same amount as the other, his peers. And it, it had actually ended up really positively affecting him for the rest of his life. Whereas other people, it really hurt. Don't you think that maybe there's some social issues that affect you though? If you skip too far ahead and you can't relate to your peers and maybe you feel like maybe you're a bit of an outsider, like the kids that go to college, like at 16. Yeah. So, I mean, my brother went to college at yeah. 16. So like he's one of those kids. And I think there's definitely some kind of price to be paid, but let's think about the baseline. So how many kids who go to college at 18 fit in, right? Like I'd say maybe 50%. Sure. So absolutely there are social changes that uh, there are additional social pressures. Um, and we kind of see this with homeschooling, right? So a lot of parents who will homeschool will be super careful about creating a positive social environment so they're involved with like extracurriculars and sports and things like that. Um, so I, I think that it's a fair assumption to say that this person is going to have some kinds of social difficulties. But I think the biggest thing to kind of consider there is that these kids will be viewed differently, right? So they'll have some kind of mystique because you've got a 16-year-old who's hanging out with 18-year-olds. Or in the case of your friend, I mean, four years is a lot. Mm -hmm. You've got like a 13-year-old who's just hitting puberty who's in grades with like 17-year-olds, right? And that's like... That's really challenging in a lot of ways, for sure. Is IQ genetic? And if it isn't, how is that something that you could necessarily measure accurately? Like our IQ tests, are they, do they work? Uh, so there is a part of IQ that is inheritable. 
So there's a portion of it that is absolutely genetic. Um, you know, we're probably talking about somewhere between like 50 and 70% is my guess. Uh, I think we're pretty good at measuring IQ, but the key thing is like, it's not like take our IQ test on the internet. That's what I so, did. <laughs> Same. Um, and so if, if you really look at it, like real IQ testing done by like a neuropsychologist or a psychologist is, is like kind of hard to get access to. Like, I think it, it's a test that takes maybe even a couple of hours and it's sort of like very standardized and stuff like that. The validity of it also depends on it not being publicly available. So people can't like practice for the test. So I think IQ is a pretty valid construct. I think the problem with IQ is that we use it as, sub, as a substitute for all of these other important constructs that most people ignore. Like EQ is at the top of the list there, where if you look at actually like success in life, EQ correlates more highly with success than IQ does. What are the differences between the two? So EQ is emotional quotient. And I kind of think about it as being broken up into a couple of different pieces. So this is stuff like self-awareness, um, emotional regulation skills, um, even things like empathy and being able to develop relationships. So these are all parts of like EQ. And a really good example of this is you can look at, so what do y'all think the average income is for the top 2% of the population? Top 2% of income earners. Probably 400 grand. Yeah, I would say 500 grand. Uh, 2%? Oh, is it higher? No, no, go, go ahead. What oh, I was going to say Of the probably. world or the U.S.? Uh, I think this is U.S. U.S., yeah. I I'd would say, say probably four to 500 is my guess. 350. Yeah, so y'all are in the ballpark, okay. right? So I think it's somewhere, I don't remember if it was 250 or 400, kind of depends a little bit on, it, it's actually perfect, yeah. like so, somewhere around 300, 350, which just means, you know, you're all kind of like finance bros, so yeah. spot on. Yeah, my answer is a little closer than Jack's, though. Yeah. It actually was not. If we rewind, <laughs> we'll rewind the tape, we'll see. Four to 500 is my guess. 350. And while we're taking guesses, Graham, guess how much this super nice, super fancy espresso machine would cost you? I don't know. That's pretty nice. 200 bucks. If you went with a traditional retailer, that would be the cost. But with today's sponsor, Sonic Power, you can get really high quality electronics for just a fraction of the cost. For example, this espresso machine, 120 bucks. Wait a second. How does that work? So basically, Sonic Power cuts out the middleman that drives the prices of electronics up. They go right to the supplier and sell directly to the customer, which allows them to keep the quality high and the prices low. That's actually really cool. It's really interesting. What else do they have? Well, they also have an ice maker that you can use to make iced coffee. Oh, that sounds so good. They also just have a bunch of other stuff that are perfect for Christmas gifts, such as their Dyson dupe hair dryer, their mini massage gun, electric wine opener, and so much more. See, I don't see the point in spending more money than you actually have to on a product. If you're able to cut out the middleman and save money, why not do it? It's fantastic. And Graham, did I mention there's free shipping? You will never pay for shipping at Sonic Power. And I guess if you thought if the products weren't affordable enough, we've got an even better offer for you. Just visit sonicpower.co, that's .co, not .com, .co and use the code iced for 20% off your order. Again, that's sonicpower.co, use code iced and you get 20% off your entire order. Thank you Sonic Power for sponsoring today's video and now let's get back to the podcast. So now let me ask y'all a question. What do you think the top 2% y'all know what Mensa is? Yeah. What do y'all think the top 2% of Mensa earns a year? Oh, my guess is probably well, I'm, 150. I'm guessing it's going to be a surprising, you know, Absolutely. data point. So I'm going to say probably like 90 150 80. for me. 100. So top 2% of Mensa, <laughs> spot on, actually earns like 25 to 30% of what top 2% of but, the total population But my is. guess is because a lot of those people are more on academics, or maybe they need something that's so just like mentally stimulating that those, those fields don't pay as much as the people who maybe are getting into like sales. 
so Maybe. possible, yeah. right? So there's sure. all kinds of interpretations of the data that we need to be careful about. Um, but I think a big reason for that is like, think about who joins Mensa, right? So like a lot of times, this isn't a dig on Mensa, but like people who are utilizing their intelligence in a active way in the world oftentimes don't have time for Mensa. And a lot of times people will join Mensa at a young age. But I think the key thing about Mensa is that, you know, it, it goes back to this idea of like IQ is like a gifted kid with special needs where they run into these problems. Like a lot of super smart kids that I work with, you know, they run into these problems where they like don't develop study habits. So then when it comes to college and landing a job or they're socially isolated, they're more prone to things like depression. Um, and if you think about, you know, how do you make 400 grand, like networking is a huge part of it. Self-awareness is a huge part of it, knowing when to keep your mouth shut and when to talk. Um, being able to regulate your emotions is a huge part of it. So I think that what you probably need to be successful is like some minimum level of IQ, and it probably scales some as you get smarter and smarter and smarter. But what I've seen the most transformation, in, because IQ is relatively fixed, is teaching people EQ skills. So as you teach people more about themselves and how they function as human beings, right? Because like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you do. You're always using the instrument of yourself. And we never get formal training about why can't I wake up in the morning, right? Why do I like coffee? Why do I get dependent on coffee? Why do I get dependent on pornography? Why do I feel the way that I do? Why do I feel uncomfortable presenting in front of my bosses? Like there's all kinds of stuff about you as an instrument that we never learn. And once you start teaching people those things, you see an astronomical improvement in basically like all dimensions of their life, happiness, income, life satisfaction, like financial stuff. So how do you go about analyzing that for yourself? Or do you think that you would need someone else's help to kind of get that information out of you to like work on that? You can actually figure out, in my opinion, you can figure out most of the stuff by yourself. It's just probably going to take you a lot longer. So the first thing is that, you know, before I went to med school and residency, I spent about seven years studying to become a monk. And that was like transformative for me. And what I really loved about it is like I was struggling in school. So I basically like I was a smart kid. I was, you know, I jumped a grade um, and then like was doing fine in school until I kind of hit high school and college. And then I started like failing out of college because like just just getting straight F's. I'd, I, I was like, one of these gifted kids who didn't learn how to study. And so one of the things that really frustrated me is like I knew what I needed to do, right? So like I just need to wake up every day and like I need to go to Spanish class at 8 a.m. And I have trouble waking up. So then the next semester I was like, okay, like let me get us 8 a.m. Spanish class. That way it'll force me to wake myself up. And if I force myself to wake myself up at 8 a.m., then like my day will be productive. So I tried all of these intellectual techniques to analyze my life and try to figure out like how I should optimize things. But the basic problem is that like this thing did not listen to this, hmm. right? So I, I knew what I needed to do. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And what I really found when I went to India and I was like failing out of college and my dad was like, we've tried everything. Like, Alok, you need to go to India, right? So he's like, and I was like, all right, fine, whatever. Well, what does that mean? He says, Alok, you just need to go to India. You're like, dad, what's, I've tried everything. I'm getting India. F's. You got to go to India. Yeah. So well, How is so, India going to like straighten you out? It's, it's yeah. a great question. So I'm Indian. Yeah. So, you know, my family is lucky enough. It's my karma to have this kind of background. And my parents are wonderful people. And they tried everything. So, like, as I started failing, they tried to, tried tough love. They tried, um, you know, they, they sent me to see a psychologist. Like, they kind of tried everything under the sun. And nothing was working. And so, like, I think they understood that there is a knowledge about the self in the East that is 
very powerful compared to the West. And if you all want to understand that, the simple thing to understand is that all of our scientific understanding about you, neuroscience, psychology, whatever, none of it actually applies to you. It's all population-based. So when we say, like, do you all get that? Yes. Right? So so this but is the problem. For the average yeah. view, I think probably Yeah, so, so this is the thing that's kind of confusing for people. So if I say that, like, let's say SSRIs or antidepressant medications are 30% effective for depression. Does that mean that if I give you an antidepressant medication and you are depressed, you will get 30% better? Absolutely not. So what we do in Western science is we take 10,000 people and we give them something. Like we'll give them, let's say, antidepressant medication. And then we'll see on average, what's the improvement? So what you really need to understand is amongst those 10,000 people, there are actually 10,000 individual responses to these medications. And then what we do is we average all these together and then we kind of say, this is what's right. So the best example of this is like, do you all know where we got 2000 calorie diet? Any idea? Probably just the average person, right? Absolutely. So it has nothing to do with science, nothing to do with metabolism, nothing to do with physiology, nothing to do with carbs or keto or any of that stuff. It's not scientific at all. Literally what we did, there's this thing called the NHANES study. And what we did is we asked Americans, do you have any health problems? And they said, no. And then we said, okay, for all the people who have no health problems, how many calories a day do you eat? And then we literally averaged that number. And this became a recommendation. So if we use this system for fashion, right, what would be our recommendation? We're going to take what you're wearing. We're going to take what you're wearing. We're going to take what I'm wearing. We're going to find three random women on the street. We're going to, we're going to take all those pieces of clothing. And we're going to average them together. And everyone's going to wear like a gray smock, mm. right? That's our recommendation. So a big thing that a lot of people don't realize is that Western medicine is not individualized. And this is precisely why you can read a paper on neuroscience. Let's say you read a paper on neuroscience that says willpower correlates with success. And then what do you do with that? Like I read that paper and then do I get better at willpower? Like there's no, there's no subjectivity to it. So in the East, the way that they learned about their mind was very different. They started with me and only me. I don't care about anybody else. How does this instrument work from a subjective standpoint? And this is why the West, I mean, the East developed meditation because someone sat down and was like, how do I control my mind? How do I calm myself down? What is the technique that works? So what we see in Western science is that we're very deficient in techniques. We know everything about the science of charisma and the science of willpower and the science of memory. But have we figured out what's the best way to learn? Have we figured out what's the best way to boost willpower? You know what the answer is? What's the, what's the one practice that we have that boosts willpower and memory? Boosts willpower and Could memory. be meditation. Absolutely, yeah. right? And they figured that crap out 6,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago by some estimates without a single scientific study because they looked at what actually works for an individual, not what works for a population. And that's what where we are in the West. And it's great. I mean, Western medicine isn't bad, right? I'm a medical mm. doctor and it's good in a lot of ways. Because if we took, look at something like cholesterol medication, if I'm seeing 100 patients and I want like this population to die less of heart attacks, I can give them cholesterol medication. It'll improve the health of the population as a whole. But there's no individuality to it. And so this is where I think that like what my dad kind of circling back to the mm -hmm. point at hand is he sort of recognized that like what I needed was like something that can be taught in India. Like I need, I don't know exactly what he understood but he kind of said like, hey, this is what you need. Because they tried everything else. So you just need to go. And for once in my life, I just like listened to him. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I didn't know what I was going to do there. I didn't know. But I know that I had tried everything that I needed to try. And like 
nothing was working. So I needed something drastic. And that it certainly was. Okay. So you, you go to India, you arrive. What is, what, what happened? Do they just send you to like a camp or something? <laughs> you in have India? family in there that you stay with or how does this work? <laughs> great, yeah. great questions. Okay. So the first thing to understand is I've been to India a ton of times, but I went to a part of India that I've never been before. Don't know anyone. Don't speak the language. How much did you know going into this? Nothing. You just showed up in India. I just showed up. He said, you need to go. We booked a plane ticket for 10 days and then I hopped on but the plane. What is it like, like, okay, I'm wondering as a kid, my dad says, Jack, you have to go to the homeland. You're going to Wales. And I'm like, okay, I know nothing about Wales. They send me off to Wales. I arrive. Then what? You were like meeting I'll, I'll someone? Tell you, I'll tell you yeah, literally what happened. Okay. So I, I, I so this, this conversation with my dad is at 2 a.m. It's in our living room. Okay. And the reason we're having this conversation is it's the end of my sophomore year. It's my second year on academic probation. I'm on the verge of failing out of college or I've already sort of failed out. And it's like, if I continue failing, they're going to kick me out. Okay. Then my, we've tried everything. He's tried yelling it for the last three years. We've been having like heart to heart talks and trying to problem solve and whatever. So we're both like, we're just both resigned. We're like, this is screwed, right? This is just not working. So then he just says, you need to go to India. That's like, that's what it was. And you know what? While we're on that topic, we talk a lot about financial success here on the channel, but what's even more important is the mental health along the way. So when today's sponsor BetterHelp reached out, I actually signed up myself for a few different sessions and my therapist gave me some really helpful insight that I had never heard of before that really helped me understand my ADHD. So I got a lot of answers as to why I do the things the way that I do. And also the most mind blowing was actually how it impacted my life as a child. But then I learned how I can use my ADHD to my advantage. And it was super easy to use. You could talk to your therapist by text, chat, phone, or video call, and you can even message your therapist at any time or schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service used by over 4 million people and with over 30,000 licensed therapists within their network. And if for any reason your therapist isn't the right fit, you can get a whole new therapist for no additional cost. To get started, all you need to do is fill out a questionnaire to assess your specific needs, and in most cases, you'll get matched with a the therapist in 48 hours or less. So if you're interested in getting started with BetterHelp, check out betterhelp.com slash icedcoffeehour or use the link down below in the description to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Again, the link is down below in the description to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring today's podcast. And now let's get back to the episode. So then I get on a plane, I go to the airport and I land in Bangalore. And then like, I don't have a phone number. I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't, like, this was, like, back before cell phones were a thing. This is 2003, okay? So, like, I'm sitting there, and I was like, well, shit, like, I don't know what, can I? Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally sorry. <clears throat> okay, so I'm, like, sitting there, right? And then this, like, finally, like, you know, I don't, I don't know if you guys know, but, you know, when you go out to, of the airport, you walk out of the baggage claim, there's a bunch of people waiting for you, like, mm -hmm. your family's waiting for yeah. you, and then they wave, and they're like, <laughs> oh, my God, right? So, like, everyone leaves, and then there's one guy waiting there. And I walk up to him and I'm like, are you here for, to pick someone up? And he's like, yes. Okay. And I'm like, are you here to pick up Alok? And he's like, okay. And I'm like, do you speak English? And he's like, okay. And so I was like, are you here to pick me up? And he's like, okay. And so I didn't know who this guy was. He was waiting for someone and I'm the last person there. So I get in a car with him. And then we're in the car, you get in this van. And then we're in this van for like two hours. And we clearly like we leave the city and we're driving out of the hills. There's like no light, okay? And then like we, we like drive, there's a gate. There's a guy at a gate. The guy opens the gate. We drive through. This is like two and a half hours and it's like a bumpy road. There's like, I can't see anything. Because the power had gone out, okay? So then like 
they they like walk me to a place and then like this lady comes out and she's like, you know, oh, hi, Alok. You know, like I know your father really well. I'm Dr. Nagaratna. And so I was like, cool. Okay, thank God I, I came to the right place. They show me to my room. It's about midnight, maybe 1230. So I like brush my teeth. I change. I go to sleep. Super bare room. I, I don't know if you guys have even seen like, you know, like poor conditions and developing. It's not like poor, but, mm. you know, it's like super simple kind of like old school, like clay floor, single window, um, you know, fan that doesn't work, like very simple bed. So I go to sleep. And then suddenly I'm awoken by the sound of a bell. And then I'm like, what the? and I hear this bell, like someone's ringing this bell. And I look outside and I see the moon. Like, what is going on here? So I, I'm kind of like, is something wrong? So I think like there's a fire or something because it sounds like a fire alarm. And I step outside and I hear people moving in the rooms, but no one seems panicked. So I'm like, I don't know what this is, but let me just, I guess I'm going to get dressed because I hear people, I hear toilets flushing and whatnot. So I get dressed and then I kind of wander outside. It's like 4.30 in the morning, the moon's up. Next thing that I hear is, Bleh. I'm like, what, the, what was that? And then I hear it again. Bleh. Bleh. And then I hear like literally 50 or 60 people like vomiting. And then I walk out and then I see like in the moonlight, there's a ditch and there's about 50 people lined up and there's a handful of people walking behind them. And all of these people are vomiting copious amounts of stuff into the ditch. And I'm like, oh my God, what have I walked into? Is this like the plague? Am I going to die? Turns out that there's this yogic practice called Vamandhoti. And Vamandhoti is a practice that you do yeah. where you drink like a gallon of isotonic water, so salt water, and then you vomit it up. And it turns out that this, this practice probably has a ton of health benefits, hasn't been studied very well, but is really good for like allergies and things like that. You know, I can't recommend that as a medical <laughs> doctor because we don't, we don't have the data, but that's just one of, and I'm like, oh my God, what is this place? And so it turns out that nothing was wrong and that this is just a yogic cleansing practice um, or shuddhi practice, which like helps you, you know, clean out your like lungs and your stomach and like all this other kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and I know it sounds yeah. shocking. And so what I discovered in India was, that was my experience of what I walked into, actually. So I think I was answering a okay, question. Okay, so, so <clears throat> a couple things. How were you not just horrified? Because I was horrified. I would not trust getting into a car with a guy that couldn't speak my language. I didn't even know if I was picked up by the right guy. No, he drives for two it. hours in a van. In like, the middle of nowhere, I wouldn't. I, wouldn't I would just, I would call my dad yeah. and be like, dad, is this the guy? Like, send him a yeah. photo of the guy. Like, are you I, sure? 2003, there's no cell phone. A landline. There's got to be a payphone somewhere. But you just, how were so so, so even just getting me, in the car with this guy, Jack. Maybe times were different okay, back then. So when you say, let's understand something. <clears throat> Forget about times are different. It's, it's not about times. Okay, it's about me and you. <laughs> yes. Okay? Yes. Let's hear. Okay. So when you say you're terrified, yes. Terrified of what? Losing my life. Getting kidnapped. Your life is worth something. Yes. Mine wasn't. Well, right. Like to be honest. But, like, okay. So were you, were you like depressed in things, or was it? Like I'm a, sure. Like, take your pick, bro of whatever mental state that is negative you would like I was going nowhere. dude I was someone who was a smart <clears> kid <throat> failing out of college um you know the 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 town that I grew up in five out of five indian kids that were in my grade in the whole city three of them became doctors right so like super high expectations like failing at life miserably trying everything that I knew cuz I'm a smart kid I'm supposed to be what 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 was I, what did I have? What was worth losing? Nothing. I had nothing worth losing. That makes sense. So you're here at this place. How does this change your perspective? What do they do? How do they start? So the first two weeks I'm crying every day. 
Um, every day I get on the phone and I call from a, a, a payphone, right? So they have like a payphone, like one payphone in, in the ashram. And like, I'm on the verge of telling my dad, like, send me a ticket. I want to come home. I hate it here. Like, I can't eat anything. I've got like all kinds of GI problems from like stress related stuff and things like that. So I'm like on the verge of vomiting. It's boring there. We're doing a bunch of yoga and we're like learning some meditation techniques, but it doesn't really do anything for me. And then, so for, for the first two weeks, like I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And then what I, I remember, like, I even remember the daily phone calls and thinking to myself, like, I'm going to tell him like to send me a ticket and I want to come home. And then over the course of that phone call, I'm kind of like choking back tears. And I just, I say like, not today. Like, I'm not going to like cave today. I can always get a ticket tomorrow. I can last like one more day. And I, it was also like a ton of shame. It's not like pride and like perseverance. It's like shame. It's like, I can't even do this. Like, I'm going to call my daddy and say like, send me a ticket. Like I've washed out of this dude. I couldn't handle the shame of it. And then what started to happen is I made one particular friend who's probably the closest thing to a guru that I've had but he was actually another student in the ashram. And um, then I started like, he, we would go on a walk every day and like we would just talk for about an hour and a half. And I was just blown away by like what this person understood. Like he started like helping me understand things about myself. I was like, you know, we were talking a little bit and I think he also understood that I needed help, right? So he started to steer the conversation in particular ways where I would ask him questions. So like one day, for example, like he brought me a book and he's like, hey, I think you should definitely like read, you know, these particular chapters. And then we'd talk. What book was it? Um, I think this one was Kundalini Tantra. I'll try to Google search that. <laughs> I, it's not a book I would recommend people read. Um, is that yoga? Or no. What is sure. It? Okay. We can talk about what sure. yoga is if y'all want. But okay. In the Eastern system of, sure. of you know, but this is Kundalini Tantra is, is more tantric than yogic. Got it. Okay. So tantric, you guys are familiar with that term. Tantric sex yeah. is usually what people talk about. There's a, there's a tantric, a tantric technique to have a prolonged period of um, sexual activity without orgasm. Edging is what you're saying? It's kind of, well, so no, it's not actually, so it's that not edging. So it's, it's not edging. It's, <laughs> no, 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 because it actually technically right. it's not edging. I'm just trying to understand. No, no, so what right. it is, actually it's way better than edging. So much better than edging. This okay. is the beauty between the East and the West. Got it. So in the West, what we do is we edge, right? And what is edging? It is delaying orgasm. So you build up that internal frustration so that when you finally ejaculate, then it feels really good, right? That's edging? Yeah, I would say that's, yeah, okay. yeah. So the tantrics do it way better. They have orgasm without ejaculation and orgasm doesn't end until ejaculation happens. So they're able to have orgasms for like 40 minutes at a stretch. You're kidding. No. That's what tantric sex is. Graham wants to know how you do this so badly. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I mean, so this is where, this is where, like, how to do it. It's, Jack, you have it's no one not, to use it on man. for the it's average like, person listening. For the, okay, it's, just for the average person. <laughs> it's not something to be done. Oh, yeah. So I, I would not recommend it. Why? Because then you just, I mean, you give up on other, all other things in life. No, this no, 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 no. The no, only no, joy you possessions. have. No, no, no. So, yeah, so the, the key, just, all I need so, is this. So the key thing to understand about, I guess we're talking about tantric sex now. Um, so here's the key thing to understand. So all meditation is designed to elevate your consciousness to a certain level. Okay. Now everyone's like, what does that mean? Like, oh, like, let's like elevate our energies to like, no. So I want you all to think about your life, right? So like, Right now, how do you feel? How do I feel? Yeah. I feel amazing right now. Incredible. I'm okay. like super happy. Okay. I'm a seven. Okay. Maybe six and a half, seven. Okay. Like, are you saying yeah. gen like generally? No, like in this moment. Swipes? In this moment, seven. honestly, I would say I'm like a nine and a half. I'm a so nine happy. And a half. Why? Yeah. 
I'm because I have so many questions about psychology, just general philosophical questions and stuff like that. And I feel like I can learn a lot from you. And these are questions I've had ever since I was a kid. Okay. So you know what, what is your mind doing right now? Well, generally speaking, I would say 85% of the time is very present and just listening to what you have to say. And then there's other 15% of the, the time, you know, so one in seven seconds, I'm like kind of just like thinking about something else. And it's like, oh, I wonder about this. And then you're saying something and I'm like, applying that to my own life. When did I do this? Okay. And so yeah. let's understand a couple things. Okay. So what do y'all think is the correlation? You said you're 85% focused, right? Yes. So what is the correlation between the level of focus and how good you feel about yourself? I would say higher focus, feel better. Never thought of it before. Okay. It's, it's never like the flow state, mind. right? Yeah. Like when you get into Hold a flow. Okay, so rule number one of this discussion, because this is what we're doing now, mm -hmm. you are not allowed to cite anything. Okay. Okay, we're going to learn 100% from our own internal experience. Okay. Because who the fuck knows if the flow state is even a real thing? Like, okay, who knows? This. Like, it yeah. could be a conspiracy. We right. don't know. Science could disprove it a year from now, right? That's what science is really good at. Right. We disprove stuff all the time. Okay, so let's, let, let's talk with Graham for a second. So sure. Graham, if you sort of think about the happiest moments in your life, mm -hmm. like it doesn't have to be like the birth of your kids or anything like that, but like think about those moments where you just feel the best. Yeah. What, can you give me an example? Usually I'm working on something I'm really excited about. Usually okay. those are the moments that uh, like the flow state for me, which is time to stops and, and all of a sudden it's- Okay, okay, hold on. So now we're getting yeah. to a couple of good things. Okay. So <clears throat> let's talk about time stopping. What is the quality of the mind? What is the mind doing when time is going? It's occupied. Going, something. Okay. So let's let's talk about when time is moving super slow, the opposite of stopping, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of thoughts do you have when, when your mind is like, oh my God, this is taking forever? Neurotic thoughts. Or like what? Probably. Repetitive thoughts, just like running. Right. So you're thinking, when is this going to end? Yeah. Oh my God. You're thinking about this and then you're thinking about this and you're thinking about this. So this is the f first thing to understand. The level of focus of the mind correlates with happiness. Okay. And if we think about when we're unhappy, and also we have to have mind active to notice the presence of time. That's the other thing. You'll get that? Mm -hmm. I know it sounds kind of weird. But is our mind active when we sleep? Kind right? of. I mean. No, I mean like dreams. Or be, aside from that. Yeah. Yeah, right. So no neuroscience. Okay. We Probably can talk not. about REM sleep and sleep. Unconsciously active, but. How do you know that? Dreams. Is that unconscious? I would say so. Mm, you know, well, I don't think you. I don't think you necessarily conflict. control your. Just sometimes a dream you said will just. Dreams? Do you control your thoughts? Uh, sometimes no, I don't. I feel like a lot of thoughts are just unconscious thoughts that bubble up. I don't really. Yeah, control I would them. say the majority of thoughts we don't control. All right. Right. If we could, if it was the default state of human beings to control their thoughts, any human on the planet could pick up a chemistry textbook and read it from cover to cover. We do not control our mind. Our mind controls us. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's kind of go back to the task at hand, which is understanding the nature of mind, time, focus, happiness, all this crap. So first thing to understand is that the more distracted mind is, the more you're going to be aware of time. The less focused mind is, the less you will be aware of time. And sleep is a great example. So sleep is like a state of essentially no mind, except when we dream. Sure, we'll get to that mm -hmm. maybe. That's kind of a tangent. But So the first thing to understand is that the activity of the mind correlates with the perception of time. And so when we enter something like a flow state, the perception of time disappears. The other thing that's happening in a flow state is we have focused mind. So if you sort of think about, let's talk about like not being able to enjoy dinner. Let's say I'm going to dinner with y'all, okay? And we're like having fun, but if my mind is not focused on the dinner and I keep on thinking about, oh my God, these guys are gonna ask me to teach them how to do tantric sex. And that's only a problem because I only wanna teach one of them. 
how am I going to fix this? Right? So the more distracted my mind is, the less I enjoy the present moment. With me? Mm -hmm. So now let's talk about orgasm. What happens when you come to your mind? Go ahead, Graham. (laughs) (laughs) Waiting for you, Jack. (laughs) The moment of orgasm is really powerful from a consciousness standpoint because your mind becomes completely one-pointed. That's why it feels so damn good. So if you look at human beings, what do you gravitate towards? You gravitate towards things that bring your mind to one-pointedness. I'm walking on down the beach and there's a sunset and I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just there, right? And I'm absorbed in the experience of the present or I'm whitewater rafting. And when I'm whitewater rafting, I'm just there. I, I literally cannot afford to think about anything else. And the interesting thing about orgasm is orgasm is one of the very few physiologic techniques that automatically induce complete focus of the mind. Right. And Mm. even if we look at people like there's if you look at people who have like sexual difficulties. Right. So anorgasmia or difficulties with desire and stuff like that. Someone who has anxiety and has difficulty maintaining an erection. It all makes sense. Right. Because now we understand that if sex is about present and focus and orgasm is one pointedness, but I am anxious, I'm thinking, is my partner enjoying it? Are they not enjoying it? Blah, blah, blah. Then I don't enjoy it. It's difficult for me to attain that one pointed state. So sex and orgasm specifically is essentially a meditation technique. And all meditation techniques are designed to bring our mind originally to one-pointedness and then transcend mind entirely. The activity of mind completely stops and we still retain awareness, which is something that very few people, actually most people have probably experienced it, but it's like in, in glimpses here or there. And like maybe like whitewater rafting is a good example where there are times where in a flow state, your mind is still active usually. But... There are times where y'all will hopefully have had in your life where like literally your mind had no thoughts, but you were still awake and fully present. Has that ever happened to Mm y'all? Outside of orgasm. Yes. Yes. Examples? Pickleball. Right. Like ping pong too. Mm -hmm. Like you just get into that groove where you're just doing those forehand, 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 and the ball is just like bouncing. You're kind of listening to it. You're talking about ping pong or masturbation? Uh, ping pong. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I haven't experienced masturbation, of course. (laughs) But yeah, in ping pong, yeah, you just get into that flow state where you're just like, just keep the ball on the table. Right. So, so then like, if you think about it, you're not even having thoughts. No. And even, I would even say, so this is the cool thing about meditation is as you transcend mind, you also transcend ego, which is like, oh my God, let's transcend the ego. It's not anything so mystical. So you become one with the pickleball. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you lose yourself. You stop being this Muscle guy. memory, like your body's kind of controlling you. Your body is controlling right. and even your mind mm-hmm. is on autopilot and mm-hmm. you're just present. And if I were to, if I were to ask you, like, you know, like you'd forget about your haircut. Mm-hmm. You'd forget about everything. You're just one with the pickleball. And so this is the goal of meditation is, is to mm-hmm. a- attain these states of mind. And the, the reason that they do tantric sex is because during that sustained state of orgasm, it's not about pleasure. So this is why I say that y'all are not ready for it, okay? Because it's powerful stuff. Y'all are playing with fire here. And, and um, so what, what we really want to achieve is it's a tool that's used to sustain that state of mind for an extended period of time by powerfully harnessing your physiology. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. And I think it explains why I like pickleball so much and why Graham likes work so much because he always says like, when he's working, I ask him, like, why does he like it? He's like, why just get into this flow state? I know I'm not supposed yeah. to use that term, but no, no, that's- where that's all he's thinking about. Mm-hmm. And anytime I break him from that or like 
will be in there oh, talking about so a title upset. and a thumbnail. Yeah. And I'll hear like, and Macy walks in, Graham's like, no, he doesn't say that to his fiance, but you could tell like he just wants to be in that state of like, that is all he's focusing on. Yeah. So if you kind of look at it, so this is the thing about meditation is we as human beings, some of us figure out how to attain one pointedness of the mind that a lot of human beings will figure out, mm-hmm. right? And the key thing to understand about meditation is that it's a state, I mean, not meditation, but mm. what we're going for is a state of consciousness. And there right. are many ways to attain that state of consciousness. So uh, tantric sex is one, meditation is another, flow state, pickleball, runner's high, video games. working out, sometimes video games. So when I work with esports professionals, I try to teach them how to enter the flow state and become one with the game. Mm-hmm. And they know what I'm talking about. And that's when you see these players who enter the state where they are literally like seeing the future. And it's like they know exactly what's going to happen on the map. They know exactly where these people are going to be. And if you're on on the opposite team, when someone is like the god of the video game, it feels like you're playing against someone who's superhuman because they are. They've transcended mm. like basic human functioning. So is that your biggest takeaway going to India was, was simply the point of focus leading to happiness? That's a very core fundamental. It may be the biggest takeaway. Um, I'd have to think about that a little bit. But I would say the first thing that I learned that I really fell in love with is like this was a course in myself. So we formally study mathematics. We formally study, you know, all kinds of stuff, like even psychology. But people who study psychology don't become better human beings. Like you can take a course on addiction, right? Mm -hmm. You can even get a PhD in addiction. It does, it literally does not, it's not the same as addiction treatment. So learning something subjectively and learning something like informationally are like two different things. And so the coolest thing about India is this was a course in myself. Where do my desires come from? How can I conquer desire? Like literally, how can you control any part of your mind? How can you, can you control desire? Where does happiness come from? Where do my desires come from? Like where do my thoughts come from? Why can't I wake up? On some days I can wake up at 8 a.m., and go to Spanish class, on other days I can't. What's the difference? And this is what I found so frustrating is no one could give me that answer. And I even looked at science, right? And science will say like circadian rhythm, but how do you fix that? Like we don't have a course in the self. Like literally how does your digestion work? What determines whether you're constipated or not constipated? We don't teach people these things. And so what I loved in India is suddenly I was, I, I was in a class that taught me about all of the things that were fucking my life which is me. I I want to bring up uh, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is the fact that we have a lot of different ideologues and experts that try to force their framework on certain people, such as like you have the Andrew Tates, you have other personal development gurus and stuff like that. And they're all saying like different things, but they're all promising that these things will make you happier and fix you. Right. And so you're taking these data points. You want to apply it because they are coming from a place of authority. Right. But then every single time I listen to this, I feel like this data suggests, nope, this is wrong. You should go with this. And then the only other thing that I have to fall back on that actually is of, of, of substance would be my own personal experience rather than like looking at what the data suggests. And it was more effective when I, when I look at my own personal experience. And, and that's what you're saying you kind of experienced in this monk culture in India. All these people have different answers. Mm-hmm. And let's say that for the sake of fairness or charity or whatever, that there's a varying level of evidence for each person. Correct. Right? But everyone has some kind of evidence. So I think the reason that you have a thousand different answers is a really great principle from medicine, which is that anytime you have a thousand treatments for something, none of them work. Think about that for a second. Why would that be? 
We Probably each one is tailored to yeah, a specific very... person. Nope, it just doesn't work. So let's think about like, do we have like a treatment? Like if you get pneumonia today, how many, how many, what are the treatment options? Pneumonia? Yeah. I, whatever medicine they have. That's... Antibiotics, sure. right? Y'all take antibiotics. It's not like, like there's a thousand things for sleep, right? There's like all kinds of sleep aids and someone's like use this app and do this meditation mm -hmm. and like eat this diet, have chamomile tea. You can take medication, right? It's because there's a variability of response. But just from evolutionary standpoint, us humans figured out like, oh, like before you have surgery, what they do is they take some betadine and they swab it all over the world. Anywhere you have surgery, take betadine or some kind of alcohol, they swab some part of your skin. Anytime you go to the doctor's office, get a little alcohol pad before you get an mm -hmm. injection. When something works, all of humanity adopts it. Stuff like clothing and cooking food, right? So any, anytime something really works, it is universally adopted. And what's going on with, I think, all these people who have different ideas, I, I don't know, uh, sorry if I'm cutting you off here, but is I think that they're saying, okay, this is what maybe worked for me or this is what the science says. And they're saying it'll work for you. And they're also doing population-based medicine, right? They're saying it'll work for everybody. Like they're talking to the internet. They're not talking to a sample size of one. They're saying, if you want to be rich and successful and famous or whatever, get laid, um, then this is the path. But that's like fundamentally different from how I think w things work is that I may, so I've like, studied to become a monk, trained and taught at Harvard Medical School. I'm a clinician. I've done neuroscience research. If you ask me, will this work for you? My answer would be, I don't know. I have no idea. Has it worked for 100 people I've worked with before you? Absolutely. But one thing you learn when you start practicing clinical medicine is just because it works for 100 people does not mean it works for the 101st, like 100%. And medicine is going to teach you that the hard way because you think it's going to work and that's when you do, that's when you hurt a patient. That's when you fail a patient because you assumed you knew what was going to work. And so you're like, yeah, this is going to work. Yeah. Done. And that's when, when something doesn't work because human beings are individual, right? Like we're all unique. We all have a unique set of genetics, life experiences, right? Mental faculties. Even th there's uniqueness within you that varies from day to day. Your caffeine level will affect your state of consciousness, will affect the level of anger that you feel. Your caffeine dependence from month to month will alter all of those things. How did being a monk affect all of these beliefs? What was that like for you to be a monk? So super cool. Yeah. So I think um, a couple things happened. One is, I, so after my first uh, summer there, so I spent three months at the ashram, I went to my teachers and I was like, I want to become a monk. And so one of my teachers was brilliant, or they're all brilliant in their own way. And so he's like, okay, that's great. We, we're <clears throat> thrilled, Alok, that you are very excited. Good, Veta, that's very, very great. Go back, finish your schooling, get doctoral degree, and then come back when you're 30 and we'll take you. He didn't say it at the time, but what I now understand now is that <clears throat> becoming a monk is about giving up, forsaking life. It's about sacrificing, giving up your life, okay? I don't have shit worth giving up. There's no sacrifice. So what my teachers told me to do is go and do, rise to the top of what you can. Put forth 100% effort. Go get a doctoral degree have something worth giving up. And if you still want to give it up, we'll take you. So what does it mean to be a monk? I mean, it depends on the tradition, but yeah. kind of the, the takeaway that I got with a big lesson that I learned because my teachers were awesome was that being a monk actually has nothing to do with the external. It has entirely to do with the internal. So if you think about what does the monk do from day to day, right? Yeah. They just meditate like basically a lot. Or they'll do karma yoga, which is like service and other kinds of things. But 
basically like all the practices, it's all like an internal journey. Like the journey for enlightenment is not gained by wearing a fancy mala and wearing robes and shaving your head. And like, that's not, I mean, there's plenty of false monks out there who don't know what's going on, right? Like, it's kind of weird, but like once in a while, we'll have like this enlightened being who like creates a religion, whether it's like Jesus or Buddha or whatever. But we have thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of priests and monks who clearly are not enlightened. And so it, my takeaway, and this is what I thought was mm -hmm. beautiful, is my teachers were like, you don't actually need to forsake life. And what I sort of discovered is that you can live life fully, but like it's internally the way that you respond to things that determines whether, in my opinion, you're really, I would use the word sadhak. So sadhak is someone who is pursuing spiritual discipline and like pursuing the road to enlightenment. And it's even beautiful because it's not a form, it's not a job. It's hard to describe. So sadhaks are not the same things as monks. Monks are like formally like, you know, you take vows and this kind of stuff. But a sadhak is someone who's like going for the prize, which doesn't necessarily mean a monk. So my concern with the pursuing enlightenment, now I noticed you said pursuing the road to enlightenment rather than pursuing enlightenment. I'm just going to assume you're talking about pursuing enlightenment. Nope. You're saying pursuing? Great, great catch. Okay. That explains a lot. Okay. that. Uh, so basically my problem is like I've been, like I said, I've had these questions, philosophical, uh, psychological questions that I've had my entire life. And I try to read these books, these personal development, these growth books, and I've read so many of them and they're good books. I love Eckhart Tolle. Okay. Mm -hmm. I yeah. really, really, really do. And I found a lot of value in his sure. books. But then I read something else that spits the contrary. And then I wonder, like I said earlier, like which one is right? And I think the problem is I read the one book that changed, I would say my perspective on all of this was Siddhartha. Funny enough. I'm sure you've probably read it at some point in your life. I don't remember. I probably read it in like high school or something. It says very similar things to what you're saying now, which is like for the truth, you, you look within. And it tells a story of this kid that grows up and he's supposed to, he's the Brahmin son, if you know what that is. Mm -hmm. So he's supposed to grow up and be like this, this legend in his town and very like, um, I would say enlightened. And then he goes and that's not satisfying enough for him. So he, then he goes and he lives with the, um, what do you call the, 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 the people that, oh, ascetics? Uh, I don't know which what, what kind A S C E T I C. So ascetics are like monks or sadhaks, right? That that relinquish all pleasure, yeah, everything yep. in order to That's asceticism. Yes. So right. he does that, and it, it doesn't satisfy him. It doesn't fulfill him. So then he goes and lives a life of vanity, where he like makes a bunch of money and becomes a merchant and does all these things, and it doesn't make him happy. And then he lives with Gotama, the um, the Buddha, for a little bit, and it doesn't satisfy him. And then at the end, he just sits by a river under a mango tree. And then he finds like enlightenment, just looking and listening to the river. Yep. And I loved this because I had read so many personal like development books and everything. And all of these people telling me like, this will make you happy. This is how you find fulfillment, et cetera. You follow this framework. And then in this book, it's just like, just sit, kind of listen to the river. And I think it was implying obviously some form of like meditation or enlightened con or heightened consciousness. Right. And yeah. so I know it's, it's kind of like counterintuitive because I'm still trying to like find something. No, no. I would say in order to. Rather, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So so, so if I'm hearing you right, so like if someone listens to that and they're like, okay, instead of learning all these things, the right technique to enlightenment is, is to sit by the river and listen to yourself, right? Uh, well, it's not saying that as like a, like a strict framework, but just kind of like look internally. Yeah, right. So then, yeah. then we can say, okay, look internally and then I will become enlightened, mm -hmm. right? But if I look internally, right. it's not going to work. So, so you're right that there's there's a lot of counterintuitiveness. So let, let's explain, okay? So this is why it was a great catch that I said I'm pursuing the road to enlightenment, not mm -hmm. enlightenment. I'm not going to get in line. Ain't going to happen. So let's understand a couple things. So let's talk about Buddha. So 
one thing to understand is that this, the road to enlightenment is not like a good thing. It's like a road of frustration, despair, and like last ditch efforts and Hail Marys. So if we look at Buddha's life, okay? So Buddha was like a king or a prince. So respected, powerful, married a beautiful woman, had a healthy kid, had everything that he wanted in the world. And in, in humans, I was gonna say in the West, but probably humans, we think that when we're unhappy, we think something else will make me happy. So anytime I feel unhappy, I think if this circumstance in my life was different, then I would be happy. So there's one really interesting thing is if you look at all of the enlightened beings that come out of like India, in India, there are four castes. So Brahmins are the priests. These are the closest to God, the teachers and experts of meditation. Below them, you have the Kshatriyas, which are the nobles. So the nobles are like kings, right? So they like fight wars and they eat meat and they like have sex and stuff like that. Brahmins can have sex too. And below them are the merchants or the Vaishyas and below them are the Shudras or the laborers. So it's kind of interesting because if you look at all the enlightened beings that come out of India, none of them are Brahmins or maybe arguably one. So everyone who gets enlightenment is a king. So Buddha was a prince. Krishna, which is like a Hindu god, um, was a, a king. Ram, who's another Hindu god, was a king. So we've got like three enlightened beings. And I'm sort of defining enlightened being as like, this person was so special that like a religion kind of cropped up around them. I think you can make a very clear kind of historic and anthropological argument that these people were extraordinary, like outliers of outliers. That's why religions popped up around. So then the question kind of becomes, why aren't the experts in meditation like the ones becoming enlightened? And the answer is really fascinating. And it's that what happens to the kings is they think, okay, I'm unhappy. And so they go and satisfy that desire. And then they're unhappy because of something else. And they satisfy that desire. They satisfy that desire. And eventually they discover that no <clears throat> amount of satisfaction of my desires will ever bring me to happiness. And then they're screwed because the formula, the, the game that 99.999% of people on the planet in the history of humanity, this is the game that we've been playing for happiness. Y'all are unhappy about something. You're unhappy about your haircut. If you had gotten a different haircut, then you would be happier, right? I mean, happy, marginally. I would, uh, marginally. I, I don't know if happy is the right term, but maybe satisfied. Sure, right? So sure. so the, the positive affective experience, yes. right? So like the contentment with life, the lack of frustration, the lack of maybe a tiny amount of shame or whatever. Mm -hmm. I said everything's fair game. Yeah, no, by all <laughs> means, by all means. Dig hey, in. Yeah. Agreement. yeah, go for it. All right. So, so this is what happens. It's like these people attain everything. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, this doesn't work. And then they're screwed. And that absolute despair that nothing is going to work is actually the fuel that you need to become enlightened. Whereas the Brahmins, they're like, oh, we're going to be ascetic. We're going to forsake material things. So what they actually do is they never, there's a seed of desire that's always there. The Brahmin wakes up in his hut, goes to the king's palace, teaches them meditation for an hour, eats a great meal at the king's palace, goes back home and eats a simple meal at home before dinner and then goes to bed, right? So every day they're traveling to the king's palace. They're seeing the, the person who has everything. And there's a seed of desire there that's left. You can get it really small, but you can't really get rid of it 100% or it's very hard to. And so the really interesting thing is that it is through the gratification of your desires for some amount of time that you'll discover that desires are not the root of happiness. And once you learn that lesson internally, then you can really start chasing it. Wow. Okay. So the interesting thing is that most of the people that I work with who are like really on a spiritual path are also professionally incredibly successful. 
And what I try to help people do is they'll come to me and they'll be like, you know, let's say moderately successful. And they'll be like, I want to learn spirituality because I'm unhappy. I work in private equity and I've been doing this for a while and I have anxiety and like it's causing problems in my marriage and like I'm a managing director here and like, I don't know, like like I've gotten to where I wanted to go. I took all the right steps in, in life, but like I ended up in the wrong place. Like I was supposed to be happy and content. And I encourage you all to just think about the people that you know who are incredibly professionally successful, right? The most successful people on the world. And just based on what you know about them, would you describe these people as like happy and content? Probably no more than the average person, right? So, and there's data, right? So I, I get to break the rules that, you know, money correlates with happiness up until a point. And I think that it's hard to be content when security is at, at risk. Um, but in my overwhelming experience, what I find is that the people who are really on the spiritual path are the people who start out as materialistic. Because that's when you really get, you have, it's a very powerful learning to recognize that nothing in the world will make you happy. But you can't know that until you have everything in the world. You think that you need to hit like the lowest low to break to, I would say, find some form of, not find enlightenment, but like end up on that road towards enlightenment and really start questioning the things that you've believed? Probably that you have to achieve so much to then, I think, go to something like that. Well, it's just about sacrifice, right? What do you mean? Losing things that you thought were valuable and then getting that reality check of like, you know, I didn't need to lose anything. Go ahead. Oh, I was saying from your perspective, it seems like when you achieve so much, then it's like, what's the next thing I could achieve? And I think that would be enlightenment at that point. Not like a rock bottom thing, but like, okay, I've got everything I I need here. More is not going to help that. So what don't I have? Enlightenment. So I think think y'all are both right, but I think the question is the wrong question. And so listen to me, okay? So what are y'all doing? You're saying, okay, there's this internal path, right? And Mm -hmm. what are you asking? You're saying, is this the circumstance that leads to the right internal path? Or is that the circumstance that leads to the right internal path? So I know it sounds kind of weird because I talked about this shared set of circumstances as as scientists. So by the way, when I first went to India, I was super skeptical about all this kind of stuff. I'm still skeptical to a certain degree. Um, But I I think that we can look at data and we can say, okay, like here are the core principles. But at the same time, I would say that you don't need any particular circumstance because the work is actually internal. You don't technically have to have a lot of desires. I mean, you have to fulfill all, all of your desires. You can start right now and just look at the nature of desire and what happens when you fulfill a desire. Does it lead to happiness, right? So let me ask you all a question. What do you all like to eat? What's like a favorite indulgence? in and out in and out burger. Okay, so like what is the correlation between, what is like eating in and out Let's go with in and out I think it's a little bit more indulgent than, okay. than pokey. This is a yeah. healthy chat over here. Um, so if we think about like, like what happens when you eat in and out, what happens to your happiness? I would say like it, it goes up when I'm, when I'm eating it. And then afterwards, not all of the time, but sometimes I'm like, I shouldn't have ordered three burgers, you know? And then I feel a little bit like, yeah, you know, not the smartest decision. So, So let's even give you the ideal scenario. Okay. So let's say that you eat in and out and you don't have three burgers. You have two. Yeah. Two is good. Okay. Two is good. And then what happens to that desire for what is you feel happy, right? Because you had two burgers. Yeah. And then you also feel proud of yourself because you didn't overdo it, right? So there's a second happiness there. Well, I don't usually order okay. two burgers. So it's I, I couldn't I couldn't okay. put myself in that situation. Yeah. So so I don't get fries, by the way, guys. So don't think I'm some <laughs> like indulgent person, but <laughs> I get three burgers. Okay, go ahead. Um so so then, but what happens over time? So now that you've satisfied your desire, <clears throat> yes. 
And we'll get back to the guilt in a second because yeah. there's a lesson to be learned there. But then are you happy forever? No. No, I wake up the next morning and usually, you know, my stomach doesn't feel fantastic. Okay. Uh, and then I would say I am back to my baseline. Okay. Two days in, three days in. I forget about it. Okay. And then what happens eventually? I get in and out. Very good. Right. So the first thing to understand is that now we're in, we're, we're stuck y'all think about this. So now your happiness is dependent on your access to in and out. This is the way that you're structuring your life, right? Like think about that. And we, here we are, we, and you go chase the in and out because you want the in and out and it makes you happy. But like, hold on a second. Now you're like fucking in and out is going to determine whether you're happy on a day or not. Not to mention what you said earlier, which is a brilliant insight, by the way, that oftentimes satisfying our desires also comes with a cost. So I'll give you like an example of, let's use in and out, but let's, let's space out a little bit. So I want to eat an in and out burger. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm excited. I'm even happy before I have it, which is interesting. No, <laughs> something to be learned there. So then what happens? I have my first burger and then am I happy? I would say you are satisfied. Yeah. So like I would say maybe happy. I, I don't know. I don't like happiness is kind of a dangerous word. Yeah. It's so dangerous. So yeah, let's you know? just talk. Are you a hundred percent positive? No. What do you need to be a hundred percent positive? Another burger. Absolutely. Right. Right. So even when you gratify a desire, it grows and you want it again. And then even if you have that second in and out burger and then you have that third in and out burger, and now you've crossed the, the bad end of desire and we've got into like the shady part of town where now you feel guilt. So if we really think about it, like how much joy do you really get out of this? You're, the first burger doesn't do it, creates more cravings. The second burger kind of feels sort of good because you know, your stomach is like, we're done now, bro. Mm -hmm. Like your stomach tells you this is enough, but your mind is like, fuck no, mm -hmm. one more baby, let's go. I want that joy, the joy that I used to have. Oh my God, that first burger was so delicious. And the second burger was so delicious. I'm chasing the past and I want to recreate it. And so you have that third burger and then you're filled with guilt. And now it's like, if you really think about it, the anticipation causes you to suffer. Even the first burger doesn't give you perfect happiness because you want that second one. And that second one as you're eating it isn't good enough because your mind is like, I want to be hungry again and have my first burger. Mm -hmm. That's really what you want. And so the mind goes on chasing, chasing, chasing. And the more that you look at the gratification of your desires, the more you'll realize that it's, you're kind of screwed, like no matter what you do. So you don't, I think it helps. And we have data to suggest that there's a certain path that helps people get to enlightenment. I think that is a scientist. And at the same time, you don't need it. But what if we switch in and out for something like the gym? Something or pickleball. Healthy. Or working, you know? Like, how would this be different? Because you have the negative effects of eating too much in and out. But what about doing something like that that's positive, that you're just as equally obsessed with? The gym. I'm excited thing. to go to the gym. So I encourage you all to look at it, right? So let's talk about the gym. What is your relationship with happiness in the gym? Love going to the gym. Getting a good forward to it. Yeah. So I'm guessing that, so when you go to the gym, are you perfectly satisfied when you leave? Most of the time. Usually I want to do more. Like I'm, I'm like, I, I should have pushed myself harder. Okay, right. So there's a slice of unhappiness. And so let's think a little bit about when you go to the gym, what is it that gives you your contentment? I love being able to zone out. Like for me, put on my hold on YouTube a second. Videos. This yeah. is not this All is right. not desire. This is not the gratification of desire. This okay. is attaining a state of mind. Okay. Not the same thing. Yummy. Okay. Right. But aren't sure. you desiring that state of mind? Absolutely. And what does that do? What is desiring a state of mind of peace? What does that create for you? Happiness, right? Nope. Or like what? Fuck no. Are you kidding? 
What is attaining the, a, st a state no, of mind? Desiring a state of mind. Oh, what is that? Right? Because why does this guy love the gym so much? I'll tell you why he loves the gym so much. Because the rest of his fucking life, he can't get it. You see that? Because your mind what? is so, like, you love yeah. work and you love the gym because the yeah. rest of your mind, you're not in that peaceful state of mind. And so you don't like the other parts of your life. You don't like cleaning the toilet. You like going to the gym, zoning out, feeling good about yourself. Well, I think I like tasks. I like things to do throughout the day. Sure. Like, I feel sure. productive when sure. I do those things. Right? So I, I think that also feeling productive, you're going to, I think you're going to end up sort of in the same place. Now, if we're talking about a state of mind, then that's, that's kind of my point is that the fulfilling of desires, the reason that desires are so good is because if you really pay attention to your process of eating in and out, there's an orgasmic moment sprinkled in, right? When you're not doing the thinking. And it, it, that, that's the thing is when you take that first bite of in and out, are you the, the first bite of the second burger? where everything is aligned. And in that moment, you're just enjoying the burger. You're not thinking about number three. You're not regretting number one. You're not thinking about the gym tomorrow. You're not feeling guilty. So if you really look at even the mechanism of gratifying your desires, it is that when you gratify your desires, usually for a brief period of time, you enter a particular state of mind. So what's okay. the end goal? Is it just to is be to have extended periods of time in that state of mind? Huh? Because... I heard two questions. The, the end goal, right? Yeah. Is, What's the end goal? Is just being content anytime, not having anything that you need. The end goal for who? For the average person. I have no idea what the end goal is for the average person. But like, okay, but you're suggesting that it's not such a good thing when I'm on like that that perfect equilibrium where like the sauce and the burr, the ratio is perfect and I'm just no, fulfilled no. enough. Like like achieving that is not <clears throat> a great a good thing. What do you think? Is it, it, achieving that is that a good thing or a bad thing? Perfect. Probably, probably not a good thing because Why? it means it's I'm about to eat a third burger. You know? Oh, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 not allowed. So that moment of perfect equilibrium is exactly what you're chasing. And how does it feel to have that perfect moment of equilibrium? I think chasing instant gratification, generally speaking, broad swipe or broad strokes here, is not a good thing. Like if you okay. want to assign as a general framework, what is good for me? What is bad for me? You find something that is painful immediately, but yields rewards down the road. The same way that like gratification immediately, pain down the road, you want to go with the long-term benefit. Okay, so great point. So let's talk about instant gratification, okay? So the problem with instant gratification is that if we think about it, there's, there, there isn't a, the problem with instant gratification is not in the gratification. It's the price that you pay for the gratification. Does that make sense? Yes. So- it's not the state of mind. That's, that's the beautiful thing about instant gratification is when you do this particular thing for that flash of emotion. So I, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. So like I'll talk to people about using heroin, right? And I talk to them and I'm like, oh, this was before I understood addiction psychiatry. I'd be like, I don't understand. <clears throat> like heroin is ruining your life. You're like on probation at work. Your wife is divorcing you. Your kids hate you. You mortgaged your house. You took a second mortgage out on your house in secret and you spent it on heroin. Like- I don't understand how you just, it's ruining every part of your life. I don't understand why you can't just stop because everything that you tell me that you love that's falling apart in your life is caused by heroin. And he's like, bro, you don't understand. The moment I use heroin, all of the things that are falling apart in my life go away. That's what fixes the problem. It doesn't create the problem. It fixes it because while I'm high, I don't care that my wife is divorcing me. I don't care that I'm heavily in debt. I don't care that my kids, it's the only thing that makes me feel good, right? So instant gratification, that bliss that we can create chemically 
is a wonderful thing. If it wasn't a wonderful thing, we wouldn't have addicts. The problem is when you describe instant to it, it's the price that we're willing to pay for transient states of happiness. Eating that second burger isn't so much of a problem, and life is meant to be enjoyed. The tricky thing, the reason that we, the key thing that we don't understand is that thus far, since we have not studied ourselves with even 1% of, y'all, y'all make a beautiful podcast. How many hours have y'all spent analyzing the podcast that you make? What do you think? I don't even know. I didn't know. So clue. many. Like 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. Three and a half years, right? Of right? doing yeah. this. I think it, uh, probably sure. my ballpark would be about 10,000. <clears throat> sure. Right? So, and, and like how many hours do we spend studying like what makes us happy and what's the nature of our desire? And what you'll discover is that the instant gratification is great. Like it's that state of mind. It's always the state of mind. So then the question becomes, and this is the problem that we make is because we haven't studied it. We believe that the gratification of desire is the, is the default way. It is the default way, but is the only way to attain that state of mind. We never try to cultivate the state of mind independently. We never ask ourselves, what are the thousand different ways that we can get to the state of mind? And gratification of desire is just one of them. Orgasm is another. And orgasm is not the same as desire, right? So even if we think about the sexual act, there's the, I want to get laid. And then there's the, yeah, now we're naked, which is a fulfillment of a certain desire. And that's like a state of like sort of bliss. And then there's the actual state of orgasm, which is like a no mind state. If you really pay attention to it, there's like no mental activity at all post not clarity and all the stuff that happens afterward, then mm. your mind kicks into gear, right? So you're saying people generally stumble across something where they get to this no mind state, right? Like this pure bliss, equilibrium, everything's perfect. They stumble across something like that and then they continue to pursue that, but on a, like kind of like an unconscious level, whereas if they had more conscious thoughts about, hey, I want to achieve this state in other areas of life and they pursue that, then it would serve them better. So here's what I think happens. I think human beings do what our brains are designed to do, okay? Which is that when I feel a certain way, I form an association. So like what happens is you, like how, why do you go eat in and out Because your brain is like, where is this happiness coming from? It's coming from the burger. So it is a reflexive thing. It is a biological thing. It is an evolutionary thing, okay? And so then what happens is it's not, it's kind of common sense, right? That's why everyone in the world is chasing desires because it's actually a default state of like how it works. It's like simple reward circuitry, nucleus accumbens stuff. Like I'm sure y'all have heard about this from other guests, right? So when you eat an In-N-Out burger, you get a spurt of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. It reinforces behavior, gives you pleasure. You want to do it again to get that pleasure again. But we also know from neuroscience, remember I'm allowed to cite things y'all aren't, is that sustained activation of the same circuit doesn't work. Right? So this is how we develop tolerance. Playing the first game of League of Legends or Dota or, or Valorant or whatever you want to do is lots of fun. The eighth hour doesn't give you the same amount of fun. So what people will do is they'll, they'll naturally continue chasing their desires because that's the only consistent way that they know how to get to like a state of peace or contentment. Transcend. Hmm. And y'all, oh my God, do you guys know how much people envy you? Especially Graham. You know why they envy him? This guy is so lucky. He feels at peace when he's working. Holy crap. Everyone on the planet wants to be like Graham. I wish I could love my work because then I could be super successful and I wouldn't have to suffer for it. I wish I loved work as much as I love orgasms or heroin. 
we got to clip that. Hear that, Josh? Okay. So <laughs> there's a couple things I want to I want to dive into yeah. here. I would love for you to finish your story too. But while we're talking about Graham, okay. So oh, I, I love talking about myself. I have these Graham. theories. I love talking about. Oh, so Graham I've too. known Graham now. Don't know how many years. Four and a half years. Four and a half years. Okay. <laughs> so fairly well because I've lived. Five. It'll be five on, in March. Because I've lived yeah. with him as well. I've lived with him for eight months here and like no eight months in LA and then what about a year here. So quite some time, right? We're business partners best friend, so many things, right? I notice this kind of like lower vibration undertone of stress, impatience, negativity, like more neurotic thinking, et cetera, a lot in him. I'd say and very I, little negative thinking. And I absolutely, and I absolutely, I have the, the speaking <laughs> Starbucks cup right now, okay? And I love him for it, right? Like I, I enjoy spending time with him and everything, but I notice these things. And as his friend, I like to provide suggestions on how I think he can improve his life. That's just what I like to do, right? You want to know what you can do to improve his life? Don't talk about the, look at his face. Don't talk about right. the negative things about him in public. That's number one. But keep he, going. He, oh, he doesn't really. No, I wouldn't okay. say, yeah. no, I speak about Graham extremely yeah. highly. And when I'm saying I notice these like lower vibration things, such as stress and stuff like that, this is me trying to be productive, not just saying this for yeah. viewers or no, anything. I would agree I'm, with I'm, him on the stress. The negativity. Okay. Graham, is more, this is, you know. You have the Starbucks cup. Okay, go I ahead. the Starbucks Okay, Jeff. my bad. <laughs> so anyways, and I try to provide suggestions to him that I think would make him better off, is that like he really seems happy when he's working, but I'm nervous that a lot of the work is about the ends. It's about... It's, and he says he attains like this flow state, yes, which which I, I agree. I can totally understand that. But part of me is concerned that he continually places his value and worth and stuff on the ends rather than enjoying the process. And so I want to know, maybe for mm -hmm. Graham, uh, what would you say to somebody like Graham that thinks maybe something will continually make them happy but they continually find themselves in this lower vibrational state. I would never say something to a person like that. Why? I would ask them questions. So I, I think like there's like the fundamentals are different here. So like you think he needs help, right? Mm -hmm. And you've diagnosed some problem because mm -hmm. you know him really well, right? So you preface this with, I've known you so for so long. You, so you, you started out by stacking the deck of like, Here's all the evidence for why my opinion is correct, right? And then you said, this is what I've observed. It's clear to me that you love the guy and that you want to help him and your heart is in the right place. But if you kind of pay attention, how did he respond to what you said? He combated it. Absolutely. Right? Some so, of it I agreed with. The stress I agree with. Sure. So you're yeah. self-aware and stuff like that, but yeah. affectively, like emotionally, like he did not like that, bro. Like y'all can go back and watch the tape, but just like watch, there's like a lot of no. good. How did you feel I think, about it? I'm indifferent about it. I, I think there's a, a healthy amount of like back and forth that Jack and I constantly. I, I oh totally, yeah, I totally, like I was giving Jack totally, crap for his I, haircut, not, so it's I'm like not, this back and forth. I totally agree that there's a lot of health here. I'm yeah. not trying to create a mountain out of a molehill, but I saw something called micro expressions. Is, and I, I, I'm just please no like, dive yeah, into. An hour it. I love sure, this. I love so this. I I yeah. I got some degree of discomfort from him the moment you brought it up, like mm -hmm. when you were saying like all this kind of stuff. And I'm not surprised that he pushed back on some of it. But so you want to help someone, right? Mm -hmm. What do you know about them? Just what you've observed. I mean, uh, clearly, I mean, a very small portion of all of the the things in their life, the determinism, right, in his life that has led to him making certain judgment calls. And then 
all I observe is this, like I said, a lot of times stress and like lower okay. vibrational things. And from there, I try to understand where is that coming from? Okay, so Jack, so let me ask you, how many things have you said to Graham to try to help him with this? I mean, it's, I would say I've brought it up over the course of a few years, mm -hmm. several times. Right, and what to, effect has it had? So far, none, but you're a professional. So yeah. I like your so, opinion on it. So what I'd say is that you're a smart guy, right, Jack? You know your stuff, bro. Come on. I think I'm, you've read a lot of you've read a lot of books. Oh, tons of self help. Yeah, tons of self help. Right. You're very insightful. You're very intelligent. You all have a podcast where like literally the best and brightest minds, present company accepted, come to your podcast and share with you the wisdom of just the crazy successes they had and how mm -hmm. they built their life. You are very equipped. You say you're not a professional. You may not be a trained psychotherapist, but you know a lot. Right. I would say I have a good understanding. Okay. And despite you knowing so much and reading so much and learning so much and knowing this guy so well, everything you've said hasn't helped. Mm -hmm. Stop saying, and start you think, asking, right? I agree with that. I agree with that fully, 100,000%, without a doubt, yes. I think people imposing their own beliefs on what will improve someone's life, as I alluded to earlier, is just overall a negative thing rather than understanding and them understanding for themselves. So it's not about what you're saying is right or wrong. So here's the crazy thing every single thing that you've told him is going to help, mm -hmm. right? Well, it potentially could if applied, but who knows, right? Ah, no. So, so potentially could if applied. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say my statement again. You okay. tell me if I you agree this. or disagree. Yeah. Everything you told him is going to help mm -hmm. if applied. Mm -hmm. So everything you told him is going to help. Why isn't it being applied? Because he doesn't want to. Okay. How do we get him to change his mind? He probably has to find out for himself. How do we help him find out for himself? Asking questions. There we go. And look at what we just did with you. What did we do with me? <laughs> did you pay attention? Uh, you changed his... You asked me questions. Yes. There you okay. go. And okay. now yeah. you get it. Right. See? Okay. So this is something my entire life I've done this, where if I see an issue with someone else, else using the term better off, just as a broad stroke, I try to understand where they're coming from and I see some place where they're suffering in their life and I try to assist them and make them better off. I have done this my entire life. I try to fix people, right? And so I see these things in Graham and I wonder why people don't listen to my advice. Cause I've per continued to give advice for my 25 <laughs> years of existence to people and they don't apply it, right? And they are not better off from my advice. So I would say in the past year, maybe two, I've kind of recognized the fact that they do need to find out for themselves, right? And there is merit in suffering and, and, um, and I would say letting someone suffer. Or letting someone, but but at what point? At what point do you step in and say something? <laughs> I know it's a super. Okay. No, 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 Jack. So so here's like once again, I think you're so you're brilliant. Okay, so let's just like I'm about to say something that I think could come across as harsh, but I think you're ready for it. So Please. let me just yeah, yeah. let me just cuddle you for a bit, mm -hmm. a bit. Okay, so like you care a lot about other people, mm -hmm. right? And you read a lot and you learn a lot. You've applied it to your own life. You know how to help other people. You know 100 percent that it's going to help him. Like you know that. Like you can give me some humble shit answer to make you not sound arrogant because you're virtue signaling and you don't want to seem like an asshole, but in your heart of hearts, you know, it's going to help him, right? Yes. Okay. So let's like, let's be authentic with ourselves. Number one. Okay. Okay. So now the question, I think the reason, the problem that you're running into is like, so you want to help people. Yes. Right. And that drive to help people causes you to help people. And then you want to like make the world a better place and love and stuff like that. Where you need to start, sure, you can learn techniques. I've just told you, okay, you can ask questions instead of say things. And so now, like, Jack is like, yeah, now I'm going to, like, 
ask everybody questions yes. and then I will help them right. and I will make the world a better place because these are the people that I love and I'm going to help them. Have you ever asked yourself why you want to help all these people? Why? I, I, cause it, it's, it, it satisfies my selfish desire of being happy. I would say. Do you know that? I like I like it when somebody makes a difference. I tell someone to open up a high yield savings account. I just did this with a close family friend or not a family friend, a hometown friend. He did it. And then I texted him I'm like, hey, did your interest come in? And he's like, yeah, I just made X amount of money off of X amount of money. This is amazing. I'm like, yes, like this is awesome. You know what okay. I mean? So or I see someone that so that's now, overweight and I want to help them lose weight. If, if you, you really know? want to fix this issue. Yes. The key thing that you have to understand is it's being driven by this. It's not actually about the other person. It's, I mean, it is about the other person. There's genuine love in there. It is satisfying my own but, selfish desire, yes. Right, so so then, and it's, I, I even think the way, the word selfish desire, I think is a mental construction. I don't think that's in a sense what it is. I think you've observed something within yourself and then you've like read a bunch of books and you've said, this is what's going on. That's not, I mean, that's a piece of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I think if you really want to get good at this, you have to really dig into where does this desire, mm -hmm. because it's, like, sure, it makes your ego feel good, but it's, like, deeper than that. Right? Probably. Yeah, right? I like, think... this is, like, it's a part of who you are. I would say so, yeah. Right? It's not, so satisfying your selfish desires on the narcissism and ego spectrum. This isn't narcissism. This yeah, is, this is, you know what this is? This is debt, bro. What is it? Debt. You owe these people. You think so? Absolutely. This is karmic debt, baby. I, interesting. Okay, okay. I, I, I appreciate the insight. Do I agree or do I disagree? <laughs> I, I would say I err more on the side of disagree because I will do this 100%. for plenty of people that I, that I don't feel like I owe Oh, them. no, no, no. You owe them. Right? But, okay. <laughs> so I know that this is something that you're going to disagree with because mm -hmm. you don't have a framework for it and I haven't explained it. But if you want to know what's really going on, this is what I would, here's what I think you will accept, mm -hmm. Okay. The first is that there's genuine love, correct? Yes. There is some gratification of the ego, correct? Yes. But there's something else. There's like a hunger. There's a compulsion, which is not gratification of the ego. Because if it was, the compulsion was gratification of the ego, we'd see narcissistic kind of behaviors. Tell me I'm beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like, tell me I'm great. Like, tell me I'm awesome. You don't need to, you don't want them to tell you that you're good. You need to help these people. Like, you get that hunger? Like, do you feel that? Yes, yeah. Where does that come? Because that ain't ego, bro. I would say I do. It's part of my personality to always strive for fairness. This isn't That's, about fairness. Well, you said it's servicing a debt, right? Uh, sure, but I, I think that's a mental. So, and, and this is this is where I, I know, agree. I do think that they're a little bit so misaligned. But, yes. So here's here's <clears throat> my point. I, I know that y'all aren't going to get this right, but this is a conversation where the my goal here is like a little bit different, which is like I'm going to plant a seed that ain't going to make sense. Okay. But as over time, if you guys really want to understand, I can try to explain it. But over time, what you'll discover. So this is another thing about the East, right? So like the stuff that I learned in India, a lot of it has scientific validation, but the majority of it doesn't. But I don't think that's because it's scientifically incorrect. I think that the science is way too slow because they've been doing this stuff for thousands of years. So they have thousands of years of development without scientific validation. And there's all kinds of scientific evidence, overwhelming scientific evidence for the theory of karma. And we just don't realize it because we don't think of it that way. So like, let's go back 2000 years, okay? Um, and let's say that, okay, like, so the theory of karma says that certain things about this life 
are determined for you before you're even born. How radical is that? Very. Is it true? I don't think I would like the like like the, hair color. Is that determined before you're born? <clears throat> before based off of the genes probably. Oh, interesting. So there is a mechanism that determines your hair color, your height, your eye color, your HLA type and the predisposition for autoimmunity. All of these things can are influenced before you're ever born. Right. Right? So genetics is actually a huge scientific support point for the theory of karma because they said this for thousands of years and then we discovered genetics and then we moved it out of the theory of karma and we said this is a whole new thing but now we it's like duh right genetics is common sense it wasn't common sense 4000 years ago gregor mendel hadn't even been born he wouldn't be born for thousands of years and they sort of figured out that there are factors in your life that are essentially cause and effect so now the question becomes do all effects in your life have causes yes that's your answer. What's your yes? I would I would probably right? agree with that. Yeah. Do all causes have effects? Yes, hundred yeah. yeah. percent. This is like Newton's third law. I think right. Every action has an equal and opposite yeah. reaction. So that's like common sense, right? So we mm. also have Western conceptions of this, like the butterfly effect. Yeah. Butterfly flaps its wings through some crazy chain of cause and effect. So now the question becomes: At what point does the chain of cause and effect end? So we're saying that okay, hair color is fair. If I slap you across the face, there are going to be karmic consequences. That's like completely fine, right? We're not talking about that you'll hate me. We mean like just the physics of it. Mm -hmm. So physics cause and effect yeah. is consistent with karma. So karma is essentially that actions have consequences. That's all it is. And then the thing is the yogis, they sort of figured out, okay, where does this end? Where, where does the karmic chain end? And they figured out that cause and effect is a fundamental principle of the universe. And even the time at which you're born, the fact that you're born in this year has a cause, right? And that everything in this world is caused by something else. And it is, it is an insight into that, that is when karma becomes kind of mystical. And I may have lost people there, but it's like harder to understand. But do y'all get what I'm saying? Yes. Right? So even the fact that y'all live together for four and a half years has causes, has observable causes, but also has subtle causes. And this is where karma gets into the weird mystical stuff that is not scientifically valid at all. Mm-hmm. I think it'll become validated. I think just like New Newtonian mechanics right. validated a piece of the theory of karma, and then genetics validated another piece of uh, the theory of karma, and then Bessel van der Kolk's work on like trauma validated another theory of karma that actions have consequences on a psychological level, which was something that 200 years ago, or even 100 years ago, scientists would have said is completely ludicrous, right? That everything is like behaviorism or it's neuroscience, or it's the subconscious. So like the simple idea of cause and effect, the theory of karma is nothing but cause and effect. And it's to recognize that every aspect of, of your life has some kind of cause. And then there are certain learnings that will give you a better handle on that stuff. But what I feel from you is that there's an ego gratification part, but that ain't it. But what I think you'll discover, and you should explore this, is really look at like, why do you want to do this? Where is this hunger and where is this drive coming from? And what you'll discover is that you can't pinpoint it to any psychological event in this life. Hmm. You won't be able to find an antecedent cause that explains the power of what you feel. I agree. Yeah, I would agree with that. So when you say in this <clears throat> life, do you mean like a past life or do you yeah, so it's just, been predisposed right so it's just just to give you all a weird example yeah. okay so a couple of years ago so i do psychotherapy 
right? So in when I in my psychotherapy practice, like so I'm like I use evidence based medicine. So sometimes patients come to me for this stuff, but like even when I teach it, I'm very clear with them that this is not like, there's no scientific evidence of this. So with meditation and stuff, I'll say, this is what we know scientifically. This is what the traditions have been saying for thousands of years. This is what I feel confident about from a clinical perspective. If you're curious about exploring the rest of it, I'm happy to teach you, but just understand that there's no scientific evidence behind what I'm gonna say next, okay? So I've had a couple of patients that have had like lifelong mental disorders. And the weird thing is that like, you know, I had this one patient and I, she's amazing and has taught me so much. And then like, so she's had anxiety her whole life. And so I'm teaching a class somewhere and someone comes up to me after the class and they're like, hey, like I really loved what you taught us. Is there any chance you'd be willing to see my wife? Like just, would you do like a consult or something? And, and we, we have a professional relationship. So I was like, sure. And so this person has had anxiety for many, 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 many years. And um, has also been in like clinical treatment for many, many years. And, and she's doing fantastic, like is doing really well, um, you know, is, is a, like a, a, a well on the track to partner at her particular firm, is professionally successful, has kids, is happily married, like everything's great, going great. And so after a while, so she's like curious about this sort of spiritual stuff and we're doing some level of psychotherapy, but she also has other clinicians that she works with. And then like, you know, one day she's kind of like, hey, can I tell you something I've never told anyone? And I was like, sure, right? Like, you're a therapist, you can do that. And she's like, I, I haven't even told any of my other therapists this stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, right? But uh, not really. I was just like, yeah, tell me, because we were in a particular space in therapy where it's not exciting or anything. And then, so she starts telling me about like these memories that she has. And like, I, I ask her, so there's some kind of work that you can do that's called samskaric work. So these are like, the samskars are like the karmas of the past that sort of are present in your current life and you build them in this life too. It's, we can talk about that in a second. But so she basically starts telling me about these like very vivid memories that she never had. And so what I did is I kind of treated it like even the fact that she never had it and her specific experience was really harrowing. And she's like, I asked her like, when you feel anxious, like what is the image that comes to your mind? And she says, I'm underneath the floorboards and I know that if I make a single noise, the booted feet on top will like, know that I'm there and I know it's all over. And every day when I feel anxiety, like this is what it is, it's this thing. And so this has never happened to her, right? So there's like no evidence that she's actually been in this situation. And so I talked to her a little bit about it and I'm kind of shocked by this. And so then I tell her like, okay, here's my take on this. So if we accept the theory of karma, we would say that this is uh, some scar from a past life, which is present in this life. There's other scientific explanations. Maybe you watched a movie when you were three years old and the movie was really scary and it traumatized you some way. It doesn't have to be something mystical from a past life, right? There's all kinds of different explanations here. At the same time, what do you feel about like psychotherapizing that trauma, right? Like what if we work with whatever that emotional mental energy is? And this is what I think is like unsafe territory in terms of science is, mm -hmm. is just sort of saying like, okay, once something exists in the mind, like who knows where it came from, but you can metabolize that thing. You can heal that trauma. We do that and she gets way better. So now I'm, I come out of that experience and I start to wonder a little bit about what do I need to learn from this, right? Does this mean that karma is real? No, actually we have no evidence that karma is real, but we have one really interesting clinical hypothesis and that clinical hypothesis turned into a question that I started asking patients, which is, hey, do you have any traumatic experiences that never happened? Do you wanna talk about those? And oh my God, the number of people that will talk about this stuff, if you like, and they're like, yeah, like this is like crazy, but I have these impressions, I have these memories. 
you know, people think that this is all like, some people think these are repressed memories, um, but it's been really interesting therapeutically. And there's actually some decent, actually not decent, some very low quality evidence, if I really am being fair about it, that, you know, this, I'm not the only one. There have been multiple psychotherapists and psychiatrists that have sort of made this discovery and have worked with like memories that don't exist. Now, that's what we know is that the memory doesn't exist or that the event did not happen. But there's a big difference. And this is where I, I kind of take issue with a lot of people who are like into Eastern mysticism because they're not scientists. So they'll say, ah, see, there's this memory doesn't exist. Therefore, it must have come from a past life. That's an extrapolation I don't think you can make. But going back to you, was that too tangential of an answer? No, no, this is great. So going back to you, just my take on this stuff, right? So I know what narcissism looks like. I know what altruistic personality disorder looks like. So altruistic personality disorder is something when people feel super depressed unless they're helping someone else. So it's a part of their personality that my value as a person depends on whether I'm helping other people or not. I know what all this stuff looks like. I don't get that vibe from you. So I think what's going on with you is something deeper is what I would call it. So whether you want to call it karmic or what, in my experience, I think the best words to describe it are karmic debt. And I use that term, I'm, I'm giving you something that I know you're going to reject because what are you going to do after this podcast? I'm probably going to eat an in and out up. burger and masturbate. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right, in that order. Absolutely. So, so this is something that like I'm planting a seed and you're going to go explore it because I know that's what you're going to do and that's all I want you to do. I don't want your acceptance here and now. I want to open a part of you to explore this for yourself. If I want to know about my karmic debt, I want to go and I want to research it. I want to understand it. Very I'm good. never going to come to some actual substantial answer. Excellent. Right? And then what's going to happen next? I am going to be left, I would say, as an unfilled cup, right? Absolutely. Where you, so you can't find the answers outside. Where are you going to look for them, bro? Inside, sure. There you go. Okay, got it. So for these past life experiences, <clears throat> whatever that might be, why do people tend to have the same recurring fears? Let's say whether that be heights, spiders, darkness, uh, certain things are all pretty common. Is that just an evolutionary thing that, you know, if yeah. you're afraid of heights because it's, it's it, dangerous? It, it, it's a great question. I think it's a question that the answer, which is very scientific, actually has an implication for karma that a lot of people will reject because they're actually biased. So let's think through this, okay? How does a phobia for a, a spider develop? Usually it happens through a traumatic event, right? So if we think about phobias, like I had a phobia of like a kangaroo, I got bit by a kangaroo when I was in Australia. Okay, so it's kind of weird phobia, right? So if you sort of think about, we all know this like scientific fact that you can rest as much scientific evidence as you want, that people learn to fear things. If we look at the neuroscience of fear development, when I have an aversive stimulus or a painful stimulus, I will learn to fear it. So we all fear hot pans, right? We don't touch hot pans because we know that it burns us. If someone, if I take a hot pan, and we don't think about it as I fear hot pans because you are dealing with it in a way that doesn't evoke fear. But if I walk in with a hot pan and I push it towards you, your response will 100% be fear, right? So we actually have overwhelming evidence that phobias come from traumas, right? We have some evidence that some phobias come from some kind of genetic impression, which by the way, what is that? Oh, it's a memory from a past life. Interesting, right? Because that's what a genetic impression of an inborn phobia is. Do y'all get that? It's like we have genetic memory, which is literally memories from a past life. So then if we sort of say, okay, if, if phobias come from psychological traumas, we know that we can track those back. So we can track back, let's say, 
of phobias to psychological traumas. Completely scientifically plausible. Where do the other 50% come from? So one of two things. One is they come from somewhere else. Or two is that they come from a psychological, the scientific principle is the same. We just don't know where the psychological trauma is. Y'all get that? So if you yeah. sort of assume the theory of karma, then everything makes sense. This is simply a psychological trauma from a past life, which by the way, through things like epigenetic memory, we also have low quality evidence for. So this is where a lot of people who are like into the theory of karma will say like, oh, like we have this data from Holocaust survivors and epigenetic changes and inherited anxiety and inherited features of PTSD and stuff like that. And there's some evidence there, but I think it's far from conclusive. So we have some evidence that memories, like literally now we know that memories can be transmitted between generations. So now the, the then the next question becomes, okay, so like, was it you, right? Or was it a different human being? And that gets a little bit more complicated, but does that answer your question? It does. Yeah. That's Let's really talk interesting. <clears throat> a little about certain mental ailments. Sure. Such as like ADHD and or like autism. Okay. And the reason oh, we're gonna why- go there. We're going to go there, Jack. So we kind of brought Let's this up before the is. podcast because obviously <laughs> we take the online quizzes. Okay. Everyone does. And I see this you know, disgruntled look in your face. Yeah. What is your take of these online quizzes? Do you think that if it says, hey, you should talk to a professional, that you should actually proceed and talk to a professional? Part of me thinks it's a little skewed. I think it was my idea to take the quiz. I'm not sure. It was either me or Alex, right? It doesn't matter. But basically, as, as a bit of a background, we kind of talked amongst ourselves. We're like, maybe we're autistic. We do it. And I don't mean this in like a joking way, but like I think all of us have unique traits that kind of point in that direction. And so we each took a quiz, the four of us, me, Jack, Maisie, and Alex. Uh, I think on that quiz, if you scored a 25 or higher, you're, you're, you lean more in that uh, direction. 24 and below, not so much. Uh, between me, Jack, and Alex, I think I scored a 24. Alex was like a 23, 24, and Jack was a 25. So what are the chances that all three of us lean in that direction? That's a question that I don't have a simple answer to, but I have a complete answer. Cool. It's just not simple. So yeah. let's start with your first question of what do I think about these quizzes? Well, that depends on the quiz. So some websites, for example, will use validated instruments, right? So these are things that, these are scientific instruments that are constructed, tested, that we do things like factor analysis and stuff like that. We develop these instruments ourselves at HG because the instruments out there don't capture what we want to capture. But there's a rigorous scientific process to determine whether the, the questions I ask you literally correlates with what I'm trying to measure. So one of the things that we see a lot is like, especially like in the private sector, you have a lot of people who will develop their own tests, like personality tests or whatever. And like all of these tests, like the reason they're very successful is because they have a lot of face validity. So they're very similar to astrology in the sense that like, why do people believe in astrology? There's, it's a more complex answer. But one reason is because when you, when you take the test, it feels right to you, therefore you believe it. So the successfulness, especially of a lot of these privately determined tests or like whatever, you know, like websites that people use, the reason that people visit those websites, what they're selecting for is not scientific validity of test. I don't know if y'all have ever done like a scientifically valid test, but it's a fucking pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. It's like 300 questions, it takes 90 minutes, and they ask you the same damn questions over and over and over again. That's what it takes to get to scientific validity. Now, there are some versions of that that are a little bit better, like we have things like the PHQ-9 or the PHQ-2, which are screening tools for depression. So we've got some decent stuff that's short form. <clears throat> but generally speaking, stuff is like takes hours to really, if you really want to get a faithful representation 
of what is going on with someone, our science isn't really that good. So should I tr should we trust these tests or not? It really depends on the test, but I think a lot of people are building tests that are very accessible and people like it when they fill it out, which is really what they're designing the test for. That's what they're shooting for because scientifically valid tests are really boring to take. So I'm skeptical of many of those things. Second thing, but who knows? I mean, maybe someone is doing all the factor analysis and constructing yeah, this stuff. Yeah, this was like a 30-question uh, quiz that maybe took now, 10 minutes. are all y'all autistic? Okay, so statistically, let's understand a couple things yeah. about autism. Autism's on the rise, okay? Now, we don't really know if it's on the rise because we're detecting it more or it's actually like increasing in the percentage of the population. So are we catching cases? Are we getting better at catching cases, which is certainly true, mm -hmm. or is it actually like increasing in the whole? I think both are correct. So if you look at one of the things that correlates with like autism spectrum uh, diagnosis, so like usage of antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications during pregnancy correlates with it. Ultimately a very small effect, but it, it does have a, an effect. Um, maternal and paternal age also correlate with autism. So we're all having kids later. So I think that's like, there's some data that suggests that that's possible. Mm. But I think the reason that all y'all are testing high, so maybe it's a bad test, who knows, right? And if we sort of think about it, if I'm designing a test that I want to engage people, I'm not going to give them a yes and I'm not going to give them a no. What I'm going to give them is a maybe that makes them wonder and curious. And then what I'm going to do, I don't know if there was a CTA or anything like this, sign up for this for a more advanced test. There wasn't, Okay. No. So the unsophisticated yeah. and website. And his fiance scored very low. Not yeah, not very low, but definitely on the the no. So so th yeah. th then the other thing to understand, which I, I think is a, a key point of the complexity, <clears throat> is I think as a society, we are developing features that the Venn diagram between the average person and someone with autism is like overlapping more, and that's primarily through things like technology use. So if we look at some of the features of autism, it's things like difficulty with social connections, difficulty with empathy, sometimes difficult, a lot of rigid thinking, um, a, a tendency for things like perseveration. And this is absolutely happening to everyone because of tech. Mm -hmm. So if we look at like what's happening, so this is something that we help a lot of people with in our community is there's a social skills atrophy that's going on across society. And unfortunately, text messaging doesn't, isn't just as good as in-person interaction. So if you look at the brain, so our brain interprets a lot of information from people, right? So I'm, I'm paying attention to your facial expressions. I'm paying attention to your body posture. I'm paying attention to all kinds of stuff. And this information is reassuring. Y'all get that? So a lot of the reassuring information we get socially is like body language, tone, eye contact, stuff like that. Now, when I start texting people or using Discord or whatever, the brain is very efficient. So anything it doesn't use, it loses. This is why we forget languages. So if I start communicating with people in the absence of body language, tone, and facial expression, the gears in my brain that interpret that stuff become rusty. And so then what happens is when I go into a social situation, I'm no longer reassured by all of this information because that circuit in my brain is rusty, which then means I become anxious. And as I become anxious, we start engaging our problem-solving circuitry. Now I'm thinking, is this person like me, not like me? Oh, when should I enter this conversation? These people are talking back and forth and I have something to say, but should I butt in? Will they feel it's bad? Oh no, now that the moment has passed, I, now there's a pause in the conversation, but should I go back and mention this thing that they were talking about 60 seconds ago or is that awkward? So then what happens is when our brain does not have kind of empathic information, 
it uses cognition to make up the gap, which is what it always does, right? So when I when my left leg is damaged, if I pull the muscle, my brain <clears throat> my brain will naturally favor my right leg to pick up the slack. So what's happening in our society as a whole is we are becoming less empathic and less emotionally aware. Also because technology suppresses activity in the limbic system in the amygdala, which means that like literally when I like, you know, I'm feeling bad about myself and I look at cat videos and then the feelings of badness go away. So we're getting more emotional, uh, like more emotional dysregulation. We're becoming less empathic. We're interpreting social signals less well because we're using online communication. And this looks closer and closer to autism, right? Because these are the deficits in the brain that people have with autism. They have difficulty with social connections, difficulty with empathy. They can just see things from their own view. So we also have online radicalization and echo chambers, which is leading to rigidity and perseveration, which we see, take your political conflict, whatever you want, Mm -hmm. we'll see it there. So I think these things are overlapping and makes it look like people are autistic, but I don't think we're actually getting autistic. I think we're affecting certain faculties that are consistent with autism, but that doesn't, you'll see that's yeah, that makes sense, yeah. right? It's so not autism. I, I think really it's, interesting it's like ADHD. ADHD kind of, if you have ADHD, it mirrors a lot of the traits that an autistic person would have, right? Was that, would you say that's an accurate statement or no? I, it's, I, it's fair. Right. And I, I think, wouldn't say that, but and it's I th- fair. I think that ADHD <clears throat> is I'm guessing on the rise, or maybe it's the same thing with autism where like, you know, where we have access to instant gratification, yeah. all of these things that basically make it so our expectation or our standards for a certain level of entertainment value are so high now that we need to have this instant gratification in every single facet of life. And I think that could mirror ADHD, whether or not it actually like transforms someone into someone with ADHD. I'm not really sure. I don't know if that's like a possible yeah. thing. Why does it seem like ADHD is getting so common? It seems like half the kids growing up is like some form of ADHD. Yeah, so I, I think that's, it's a great question. I think it's the same thing as autism and exactly what, what um, Jack. Jack said. If the mind doesn't use something, it loses it. So if we look at attention span. So if you look at like people say, okay, like screen time is good or screen time is bad. Sometimes parents, you know, will ask me, we do a lot of work with parents. And they'll ask me like what amount of screen time is good or bad. And that's, well, the issue is screen time isn't all the same. So there's a, a great guy named Carl Marcy, um, was, was a colleague of mine at Harvard Medical School. He started uh, an empathy lab thing where he, and he ended up getting, his company got acquired by Nielsen. So what he would do is he would hook people up to EEGs and like cardiovascular stuff and stuff like that. He would measure them in a, a bazillion different ways and then have them watch ads. And then he would tell companies, this ad is the best based on the EEG activity, just a brilliant idea. So I was talking to Carl about this and Carl was kind of pointing out to me that like, you know, when you watch Sesame Street and you're a five-year-old, there is a certain length of like what you're engaging with. The story is like maybe seven minutes long. So now what's going on is that kids, the moment they get bored with something, so when you're bored with Sesame Street, you have to sit through it. And over time, even if you watch Sesame Street every single day, your attention span will actually increase because you're sort of forced to pay attention. Whereas now what's going on is people have such simple access to change the thing that they're viewing. So if you look at it, if you give a four-year-old an iPad, over time what'll happen is they won't watch long-form stuff. They'll just switch off of it more and more and more and more and more, which is why if you look at a lot of these things that are very, very like common for that kids will watch, it's like compilations of super short-form stuff. So there'll be an hour of like a kid that's like looking at 60-second clips and is just like completely mentally checked out. So we absolutely have a society that is shortening our attention span. 
We also have a society, so another key feature of ADHD is emotional dysregulation. There's even some uh, papers now that are suggesting that, you know, there's ADD, which is attention deficit disorder, and there's ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And they're even proposing a third subtype, which is like ADD with like emotional dysregulation is the primary feature. And so our technology <clears throat> is regulating our emotions for us, right? Because when I feel bad, what am I going to do? I'm going to look at cat videos. Um, there's even a really interesting study that came out recently that suggested that 50% of women who use Tinder are using it to meet psychological needs completely outside of dating. And so people are super confused. And it's probably not just women. I don't know why the study... I, I saw that video you did on that. Yeah, it was so really interesting. It, it's kind of interesting, yeah. right? So so because people will wonder, like, why did this person match with me in the first place? Like, you message them and they're like, screw you, you suck, you're ugly, and they unmatch. And like, why did you do that? It's because they're fulfilling some other kind of psychological need. Anyway, so if we look at what's going on with society, there's a lot of stuff that is making our brains more similar to someone with ADHD. Now, there, that may be independent of probably, a, 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 my guess is a rise in ADHD as well, uh, because that also correlates with, I think, like parental age. So as we're having kids later, like we're seeing more of this stuff. That's really interesting. What are the implications of, of giving a kid an iPad? I, I go out to eat every now and then, I just see this kid just, just, on the it's it's like nothing the world could be exploding behind them and they're just fixated on this screen that can't be good what do y'all think i think it's terrible i i think it's rotting away their mind and i think for kids to have access to to tiktok i think is is a bad thing even for myself i i constantly delete the app to prevent myself from going on tiktok because if i watch one it's just like five minutes goes by so fast i'm like what did i just do so that's so interesting you say constantly which means you're also constantly reinstalling well it. because i post on tiktok so it's it's a bit of a double edge because i like to see the analytics of yeah. how my videos do um but when i'm on there i also like to see what's going on from a creator yeah. perspective but i very quickly fall into the consumer so this has always been true with parenting where parents will do things to elicit behaviors in their children so how do I get my kid to calm down? How do I get my kid to sit? How do I get my kid to eat? And so in the past, like we had to do all kinds of stuff to get our kids to sit and eat. But now we have this beautiful tool that like veges them out and then they become passive and it's like, you know, you can just feed them and they'll be okay. So it's a beautiful emotional regulation technique. So like, I don't know if y'all, so in our case, for example, like we're very careful around technology, but you know, when, when, there aren't, when our kids are on a flight, like we recently took a 30-hour flight with like a six-year-old and eight-year-old. And so like during that time, we like use technology, right? Because that's what's going to happen. But even for the first 12 hours of the flight, no tech. And if you think about it, like kids have been flying internationally all the time and they've never had technology and they've been okay on those flights, right? But now what's going on is parents are so terrified of a particular behavior. So then what happens is they give the iPad to avoid the behavior. But in doing so, what they're actually doing is reducing the cognitive training that they're putting their kid through. Now, so what used to happen when you were a child and your attention is developing, or even as an adult, is you'd have to force your attention somewhere, right? So I don't know if y'all like went to college, but like you have to force yourself to study. Your mind wanders, you force it to pay attention. Wanders, force it to pay attention. During this podcast, force it to pay attention. And so now what's happening is we're not forcing kids to do that anymore. So now what's happening is we have a, a, a generation of kids we're no longer taking the stairs to get from floor one to floor three. Everyone's taking the elevator. And what it's doing is deconditioning our minds, which is why we see all of the problems that we see, is that our minds are becoming weaker because we're not pushing them. 
right? Everyone's, our minds are constantly being driven around in mechanized wheelchairs. We're taking elevators. We're taking escalators. We're not using our minds. We're restraining them with these external devices. That's what's going on. So I think giving your kid an iPad, just giving it to him, I think is a bad idea. Hmm. How could parents counteract this? Is it simply taking away that stimulus from them? So we do a ton of work with parents and here's what we've learned. So it's my belief that technology is here and here to stay. It's also my belief that when you excessively restrict a child, there's a chance that they'll build that habit and things will be okay. But there's also a chance that they will flip out when they get unfettered access. So kids who, for example, like never partied and never had a drink and never were like super like careful when in high school will sometimes go to college and they will just flip the fuck out. So our belief is to teach restraint instead of restriction. And this goes back to like the yoga and stuff like that, right? Like what did I learn in India? To control your desire, to understand how your mind works, right? So this is what we really encourage is it's not about access to screen time or not access to screen time. It's what are you teaching your child in relation to the screen? So something that I do with my mm. kids is I'll ask them, they're like first thing on Saturday morning, can we watch something? And I say, sure. I'll ask them, how much do you want to watch? They'll say, a lot. I'll say, okay, how much are you having fun? I'll ask them in 30 minutes. Are you having fun? Yes. How much fun are you having? So much fun. Do you all want to continue? Yes. Then I'll ask them after 30 minutes. If I try to take it away, they'll rebel. But I ask them, are you still having as much fun? No. Nah. They start to get wiggly. They start to not like it as much. What do you all think about doing something else? No, we want to keep watching because once the dopamine hits, they want to stay. Then I say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to stop now. I'm going to take you all to the playground. And then in 30 minutes, I'm going to ask you, are you happy you came to the playground? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to take you to the playground next time. If the answer is no, I'm going to let you watch 30 more minutes. You're in full control, right? So a lot of parents mm. will be like, you know, irrespective of what the kid says, I'm going to stop it. So then what I, and the cool thing is like the kids will learn. And so now they're like, their technology usage is really good. They don't get to use it as much as they want, but like they recognize that there is a diminishing return on technology usage, which is such a great thing to instill in a kid. Yeah. I like how you're teaching them how to be a free thinker and make decisions for themselves because I feel like school really teaches you you have to be at this place at this time and do these things. And if you do exactly what we tell you, that's great. But then you go into the real world and you have no idea what you're supposed to do if someone's not telling you what to do. Yeah, because I think that, like we were saying earlier, like school like creates factories, right? It's like factories for putting out a certain kind of kid. We don't teach children how they work. Like we don't teach them about their mind. I mean, it's crazy. I'll do, you know, I'll do like workshops and stuff at like fang level companies. And I'll do the literally the same workshop for like a group of nine-year-olds. And it's just as accessible. It's like, where does your desire come from? This whole in and out discussion, you can have that discussion with a nine-year-old. They'll get it just as well as you did. Big difference is if you teach it to them when they're nine, like the whole trajectory of their life changes. That's really interesting. Restless leg syndrome, RLS. Is that a mind thing or is that a, is that a body thing? Jack is terrible at this. Just constantly his leg is like. That's not restless leg syndrome. So you have something called NEAT, which is non-exercise energy something. Okay. So let's talk about restless leg syndrome. So first of all, you ask, is it mind or is it body? There's no difference. Okay. So like what we're sort of learning is that more and more things are psychosomatic. So even things like physical ailments, like arthritis, mm -hmm. we think of arthritis as a physical condition. But if you literally get a phone call and you learn that your car has been stolen, that 
will affect your mind, right? Because it hits the mind first and then the mind will affect the brain and the brain will release cortisol. The cortisol will increase demarginalization of white blood cells. You'll have 50% more white blood cells in your bloodstream, which means that your arthritis, which is an inflammatory condition, is going to get worse. So arthritis too is a psychosomatic condition. What we certainly know about restless leg syndrome is that it is certainly quite neurological as opposed to psychological. So we know that, for example, there's a problem in the dopamine transmission. So dopaminergic agents are very helpful for restless leg syndrome. The other thing is that when we're talking about clinical restless leg, leg syndrome, we're talking about people who, when they're in bed, they kick their legs so hard that they wake up. So imagine that like, imagine you're, <clears throat> you're being attacked by a bear and it's trying to bite you and you kick it. The force with which you would kick that bear is the force with which rest, people with less, restless leg kick. So the first thing is it really makes things hard for if they're sleeping with anyone else in the bed. And the second thing is the force of the, the kick will literally wake them up. So now if this happens 15, every 15 minutes, it's very hard to sleep. So restless leg syndrome is like, can be a quite, I think it's actually like an underappreciated, people don't appreciate how debilitating restless leg syndrome is. It's going to be quite crippling for a lot of people. Wow. What's going on with you? I mean, I have no idea if you have restless leg syndrome or not, but no, that's don't. not what I'm hearing. No. What I'm hearing is that you're fidgety. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So there's a couple things. One is that about 10 to 15% of the calories that we burn throughout the day for on average, we're going to get to the variability in a second, is from non-exercise something, I forget what it's called. The abbreviation is N-E-E-T. So it's basically like this, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we burn like 10% of our calories just like fidgeting. Now, in your case, what I would say is that you have a high amount of vata. So this is like an Ayurvedic concept, but you have a lot of wind in your body. So you're, you're kind of fidgety, right? So we, we would say like even if you look at your hands, um, your features are very angular, uh, you're very like um, conversationally dynamic, right? So like if I have a conversation with him for three hours, there's going to be a clear chain from A to B to C to D. We're talking about meditation. You've been kind of more running the show than he has, right? So you've been talking about meditation. We're talking about this thing. And oh, by the way, what do you think about this? And if we go for 15 more minutes, your mind will jump to something else. So my guess is that you get bored easily. My guess is that you can dive into something for a long period of time, but then you may like, leave it alone for a little while or move on to something else. So these are all consistent with vata, which means that your mind is like the wind. It can blow really hard in one direction and it'll blow hard in a different direction later. So it's quite powerful, but it's not necessarily very consistent. That doesn't mean that you can't consistently have a career. It just means that the more variability that you have within your career, I think the more you're, you will have your best mind. Whereas if I told you, hey, you're going to work a nine to five job and you're going to climb the corporate ladder for a decade, he'd be better at it than you would. I 100% agree with yeah. that. Graham is extremely good at grinding, like putting his so nose to something. He's yeah. Gaffa, which is earth and water. So stability, like low acceleration, high top speed. High acceleration, low top speed. That's huh. really fun. Interesting. So so yeah. we have this joke. Yeah. I'm the kite, he's the string. Absolutely. Yeah. That's our yeah, joke. He's and the it, rock, you're the kite. Yeah. yeah. That makes complete sense. That's wow. very interesting. So the cool thing yeah. about Ayurveda is that you're able to make these diagnoses because there's physical correlations with mental attributes. So if you look at like the veins on the backs of your hands are going to be more visible than the veins on the backs of his hands. 
He has a roundness to his face. You have more angularity. Wait, so what could you tell about that, about like facial structure? So your face is round. Right. His is more angular. Your nose is round. His is more angular. His ears stick out more. My ears stick out more. By the way, what do you think I am? Is this an angular nose or a round nose? Uh, angular. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? So I yeah. have high vata too. That's why we're vibing so much and we're like, nice. let's talk okay, about this cool. and let's talk yeah, about yeah. this. So this is the other thing to understand about vatas is that the current society is very the favorable. So the way to success, right? So you're talking about like all these people who come on and will say, this is the road. Mm-hmm. So our whole society is biased towards bittas. So nine to five, not nine to nine, which he can pull off, not midnight to 6 p.m. twice a month, which is probably what you can do, right? So like vatas can work very intensely for a short period of time. Gafas can work long periods of time, but everything is pitta oriented, nine to five. Mm. Okay, if you look at like income, what correlates with the highest income over time, it's changing jobs every two to three years. So if you stay in a job for 10 years, cause you're like guffa oriented, you're gonna get screwed. If you change jobs every six months, which you feel like, cause it takes you six months to get bored, that's gonna screw up over vatas. So our, our society is generally speaking, pitta favorable. That being said, a big part of this stuff, if your vata is constructing a life that suits your dosha. So like I told y'all, I'm, this is just one thing I'm doing today. I'm flying out and I'm going to do another thing. And then I'm going to work on a book and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. So what I discovered as a vata is that if I did one thing, I would get exhausted. Get exhausted more quickly than my peers. But something miraculous happened. If I was doing four things, if I was juggling as many balls as I could, without dropping a single one, my energy levels were through the roof and my productivity is inhuman, right? But it's not inhuman. It's just, I know how I work and I create an environment that suits me. The problem in today's society is we always try to shape the environment. I mean, sorry, we we always try to shape ourselves to the environment, Mm -hmm. right? So someone looks at somebody else and says, oh, that person has a 4.0 GPA and they go to the library every day. I want to turn into that person. I want to be able to go to the library every day. So we spend all of this time trying to like, instead of discovering who we are, we don't even know. All we know is that we want to be someone else. I want to be more confident. I want to have less anxiety. I want to find the answers to life. I want to help other people, right? Like, and and as you look at other people, we start adapting their traits. Instead, what we really need to do is understand ourselves and then start to shape the environment around us so that we don't have to adapt. Anytime you adapt, you're not operating at 100% because you have a natural inclination, right? You have a biological like circadian rhythm that makes you a morning person or a night person. Playing into that and leaning into that is actually how you optimize performance. So let's understand a couple things. I think for you, it's not which one is right. What you've got to understand is there isn't a right. There are lots of rights, okay? And the beautiful thing is your mind is so dynamic that you can integrate those. This is like, I don't know if you've ever played a game where you like swap stances, right? Like I'm in like I'm in attack mode, I'm in guard mode, I'm in heal mode. So that's the way you need to think about your life. It's not that there's a philosophy that's correct and a philosophy that's wrong. It's which philosophy do you want to employ at this moment? So you're like, you're changeable, that's you're crazy. adaptable. Yeah. Okay, so stop sense. trying to be one thing because bro, how many more books do you need to read? How many more successful people? Well, who do you think has the answer? Because you see the merit in all of them and you're trying to bring them all together. Don't try to bring them all together. That's his job, right? He's going to integrate stuff. You get to swap. Just swap, baby. 
That's that's fascinating. Okay, I need, we need to change the topic so it's not so personalized. Yeah, it's a broad stroke for the audience. But yeah. that is, that I think a lot of people will resonate with that. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. But I'd love to talk about relationships. Okay. How long have you been married for? Twelve years. How do you meet her? Summer camp. And how did you know that she was going to be your wife? Um. I didn't right away. So this was, it's kind of an interesting story. So like, you know, I had known her for a while because we grew up going to the same summer camp. So I knew who she was, but I didn't really like know her because like in summer camp, right? Like I was in high school, she was in high school, but I'm three years older than her. So she's like a freshman and I'm like, I'm a junior or senior or something. So we were both counselors. And then the interesting, the funny thing is that I had, this was actually the summer, I just finished my time in India. So I came back and I was going to be a monk. And so I, I meet this girl who I find very attractive, right? But like, I've decided like, I'm going to forsake my life and physical pleasures are for the weak. I'm powerful. I'm spiritual. I'm above that. No, not November all day long, <laughs> baby, let's go. So the interesting thing is that I had struggled a lot with like confidence and shame and failing out of college and all that. You asked me like, oh, how were you not terrified? It's because I didn't have a life worth living, you know? So I struggled a lot with like women and I'd watched all this stuff from pickup artists and stuff like that. This was like back when pickup artists were like before red pill became a thing. It's like favorite <laughs> so, favorite right, topic. I love this. I, I learned all these yeah. like techniques and stuff and tried them, but I just didn't understand the fundamentals. So I, I met this girl and since dating was out of the question, I could actually talk to her, right? You just talk to her because I, there's nothing, nothing to gain, nothing to lose. So I'm just like, hey, do you want to like, you know, you're, you're, she's coming to, we're going to the same college. So she's going to be a freshman. I'm a junior. And I was like, I'll show you around. Right. So like, I'll, I'll take you out, you know, like you're, you're moving there for the first time. So like, you know, I'll, I'll show you where the cool stuff is. You like, are you interested in that? She said, yes. So she insists that I asked her out on a date. I was not asking her out on a date. I didn't think about it as a date. I thought about it as like, I'm 21. She's 18. She's new. I know something about this place. So like, let me just do a nice thing. Um, so she insists that we were dating when I didn't think we were dating. I was just, you know, so, um, but then we started dating and then, uh, yeah, I mean, you, so you asked how, how long that's how we met. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, you know, I decided the celibacy thing wasn't going to work out. Um, and then, uh, you know, found myself with a girlfriend and it was, then that was confusing for a while in terms of the whole spirituality thing. But then I sort of realized what I shared with y'all earlier that a monk is not about having sex or not having sex. It's about the attachment to lust or the freedom from lust that makes you a monk. And this is why we hear all these stories about monks and priests. And it's not just Christians, by the way. It's like all the religions, right? All these people who have enforced celibacy who don't have the spiritual training right. are the ones that get into problems. And then they start, usually it's men, putting their dicks where they don't belong. So what I sort of realized is that like, you know, it's about conquering lust, not mm -hmm. about being celibate. So what was the point you realized you didn't want to be a monk anymore in that relationship? Did, I mean, you, did you tell her initially, like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a monk? Yeah, I think yeah. I, I think I told her, but she thought we were dating, and I think she also knew me quite well, and she also, I think, I don't know that she ever, so she's told me many years ago that, you know, either you're going to end up as a swami, which is like a guru, like, or you're going to end up as, like, something like what I am now. So she saw a long time ago that, like, if I had gone a different route and, and, you know, I, like I thought about it, like, and I ultimately decided, and even now actively try really hard not to be a spiritual guru because it's a whole different thing. But, um, so I, I think she kind of understood our relationship, I think better than I did for a long time. 
And, uh, and then eventually I kind of came around and then I sort of realized like, okay, like I don't have to give up being a monk to like be in this relationship. So being a monk is more about the identity, the values, the belief, the intent behind certain things rather than the actual action of your, well, so, you know, so, or, or why you're doing Yeah, something. so I, I would yeah. say technically being a monk is not about that, but that's why I use the word sadhak. Right. So sadhak is a spiritual aspirant, mm. someone who is interested in spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would describe myself as, not a monk. You're a de facto right. monk. Yeah, so I think the most important part, so all monks should be sadhaks. Mm -hmm. And when monks are not sadhaks is when we run into problems. That's where all the abuse comes from. And the cool thing is you don't have to be a monk to be a sadhak. Mm -hmm. So when you speak to people, do you also speak to people through relationships? And why does it seem like right now, I guess, dating seems like a, a lot harder than it was maybe 20 years ago? So here's the problem with dating in today's world. So the first problem is that we were sold a promise that turned out to be a lie. So if you think about dating apps, what is the premise of a dating app? The premise of a dating app is that you are a certain kind of person and in your social circle, you have access to only 40 people and you may not match with them, right? So there's a perfect person somewhere out there with you, but because of the bounds of time and space, you will never meet them. What we're gonna do is we're gonna collect your profile and we're gonna compare it to billions of other profiles. And we will find that perfect person. And if we combine these two people, then it'll make it easier for you to find the perfect person. That's the promise of a dating app, right? Fair? Yeah. What's actually happened is the opposite. So now what's happening is that they say they have all these perfect people, but people are actually having to go through more and more and more people before they find the right one. The exact opposite is happening. Instead of making the process easier, so you'd have to go through 40 people before you find the one in your normal life, right? So if we go back to like 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 80 years ago, what was the size of social circle that you would find your mate? Probably like somewhere under 300 people for sure. But the dating app said, we're gonna make it easier. And what they actually did is make it harder. The other problem is I think a lot of dating apps, um, the information that they collect is something that a lot of people don't understand. The information that they collect does not correlate necessarily with relationship success. So this is another good example. So if you look at like, let's say if you look at streaming, okay? So if I can see my viewer count and like streaming platforms will show me analytics. Why do they show you the analytics that they show you? So they you want more people. Yeah, they want more people to watch. So you can improve upon them. Are the analytics that they show you the ones that you need to be looking at to improve? I would say CTR, watch time. AVD, I would say. So, so I would say probably not. So the analytics that they show you is what they can collect. Y'all get that? Mm -hmm. That's why I like CTR, watch time, easy to collect. Does it actually correlate with quality? Like who the fuck? I mean, so it correlates with quality, but it doesn't inform you as to what to do. So this is a big thing. If you think about a dating profile, the dating profile has what we can easily collect and what we can easily represent. It doesn't contain what creates a successful relationship. Y'all get that? Yes. Right, so this is a problem with dating apps is they, they have us fill out all this information, but a good match has nothing to do with hobbies and interests. If y'all wanna know, if you look at the science of connection and even the science of sexual activity, there are all kinds of variables. There are four variables that correlate with sexual activity, none of which you can even detect, or matching or connectedness that you don't find on a dating app. What are those variables? So number one is a shared emotional experience. So there was a study where they took people, they had people have a first date. 
The control condition is y'all are going to meet on a bridge made of stone. The experimental condition is you're going to meet on a bridge that is a rickety wooden bridge. What they found is that the level of attractive, the attraction between the two people was way higher on the rickety bridge. So anytime you can create a shared emotional experience between two human beings, they bond. This is why people fall in love at rehab. So like rehab mm. is a place where everyone's like fucking addicted and they're going through some stuff, but boy, do they fall in love at an alarming rate. And if any of y'all have ever worked at a rehab or you know, people are listening, y'all know exactly what I'm talking about because everyone who is working at the rehab is paranoid about the patients falling in love, sneaking out, fucking all kinds of stuff. We're paranoid about it because it happens all the time. Shared emotional experience is what creates bonds. Second thing, 90 minutes of activity, 90 minutes of exposure is ideal. So as you go past 90 minutes, attraction tends to wane, sexuality tends to wane. Um, third thing is, uh, let me think about this. What, what do you 90, mean about the 90 yeah. minute thing? You're saying like, like a, a first date? Just in general. Like if you want to feel connected to someone, you're getting to know someone. Oh, it's diminishing returns any after past nine, 90. Yeah. So like 90 minutes is like, where things so you're saying if you're off. dating, it's optimal an hour and a half and then kind of end it. So, so there's a group of people yeah. out there who have trouble getting second dates, or we hear this like feedback a lot, which is like, there was no spark. So what is the science of the spark, right? Because what happens, everyone shows up and they're like, let's talk about our interests. Let's talk about our hobbies. Doesn't correlate at all with relationships. So values over time will be important for long-term relationships and will affect things like conflict. So do we want to have kids? Do we not want to have kids? You know, do we want to be charitable? Do we want to accumulate wealth? Some of that stuff is really important for long-term stuff. And this is the other confusing thing that a lot of people don't get is that when they start dating, they're planning for a long-term relationship, but that's not how we exist as humans. We fall in love first. So this is the other thing I've seen. Every successful relationship or almost every successful relationship I've seen as a psychiatrist. And a lot of people may think, okay, like if you're a psychiatrist, don't you see bad relationships? No, like most people actually have healthy relationships. Not everyone comes for couples counseling. Every relationship I've seen that's successful has at least one red flag. And even that, everyone's like, red flag, run for the hills. Don't run for the hills. Because when you have a red flag early in the relationship, you learn conflict resolution. Can you manage conflict with this person? Right? So I had red flags early in my relationship. My wife had red flags. And we worked through those. And wow, it turns out that if you can resolve your red flags, that's actually like a very good prognostic sign for future relationships. But we run away from them. The other thing that's going on, so there's, does that explain the 90 minutes? So yeah. the thing about the 90 minutes is we just know that something about attractiveness and like how much of a spark I feel like diminishes that Could after it just be minutes. mystery? Like you leave something to be wanted sure. afterwards? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's all kinds of mechanisms. We don't know why. There's all kinds of hypotheses. But what we do know is that 90 minutes seems to be good. So shared emotional experience. So I would say like, you know, go do something scary together. Go do something. It doesn't have to be positive emotion. You can actually share negative emotion. It's fine. This is why rom-coms, I think, tend to work well because we're sort of on the same, you know, like emotional wavelength. Um, another thing is, oh yeah, the dating has to be free of hassles. So the number one thing, not, not number one, I just say that yeah. metaphorically, but one of the key things is that when, when someone, when you ask people like, what makes you want to, what makes you DTF? You know, it's like, this needs to be hassle-free. So another problem that's happening with dating is that like dating is not turning into hassle-free. In fact, it's becoming the opposite. So I'm selecting for my mate now, right? And in order to get this, y'all need to pass my tests. 
So dating apps are increasingly becoming about filtering and like interviewing. They're not, it's not dating anymore. It's not like, let's see where this goes. It's like, do you match my criteria? Which by the way is created by the dating apps because they create criteria. They ask you, what's your criteria? If you look at the history of humanity and the whole animal kingdom and mammals and all kinds of things, no one has criteria. It's like, hey, like I'm gonna do this dance for you. You into it or you not into it, right? All that stuff is gone from modern dating, which is why it's so hard. Because all these criteria and finding the perfect mate and planning for your life together from day one, like, I don't know how to say this, but an early relationship cannot withstand the pressures of a long-term relationship at the first date. You can't do that. That's why it crumbles. So it sounds like the paradox of choice is making people look for disqualifying factors rather than qualifying factors, which used to be the way that people saw dating. So there is a paradox of choice and absolutely people are more interested in disqualifying and qualifying. But I would say even go one level deeper. The fact that you are considering a qualifying factor is not how people fall in love. No one is like, hmm, do you qualify for me or not? Is this good enough? No, everyone's like, well, fuck, this person is wrong for me, but you know, like this is fun mm -hmm. and you do stupid shit. I mean, hell, my wife started dating someone who was celibate. Like how much more of a red flag can you get? Like how stupid, like how stupid is that? And there's other red flags. So like, since I failed out of college, I like graduated at the age of 23 after five years. And then what did I do for the next three years? I applied to medical school. So when I was 25 or 26 years old, 26, 27, and people asked my girlfriend, oh, what does your boyfriend do? He applies to medical school. That's literally what I did. I got rejected from 120 times. Red flag after red flag after red flag. How many people do you know that would encourage their, would encourage their girlfriend to stay with some deadbeat ass guy who's 27 years old, has no money, no job prospects, no job experience, and has successfully failed, almost failed out of college and has failed to get into medical school for two or three years in a row. So what did she see in you? She saw me. She did not see the attributes. She didn't see the dating profile and she was fucking right, bro. Right? So like, that's the other cool thing is that like, she was right. And like got rejected from 120 times, ended up training and teaching at Harvard medical school. Right. As well as a list of other mm -hmm. accolades. So like when you see the human instead of the attributes of the human is like when you see successful relationships. How long does it take for you to see the human? I think it depends on the person, but I think people know very quickly. So let me ask y'all, like y'all have been together for four and a half years now, right? Mm -hmm. As business partners, we're not together. No, 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 no. People have questions. People, no, 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 no. I'm going to use this yeah. term carefully, yeah, okay? I don't sure. mean in a sexual or romantic way. Mm -hmm. How long did it take y'all to fall in love? <laughs> um, I would say for me, after, after, we, <laughs> after we had dinner, <laughs> <laughs> Jack and I got dinner. That's off the yeah. rip? Yeah. Right? He fell in love yeah. off the now, rip. Yeah, well, here's the thing. It, it, to clarify, Jack sent me like eight emails wanting to do any amount of work. And I gave him a task to do. Randomly, after the eight, eighth email, he nailed the task. And as a thank you, I said, how about this? Meet me across the street from my office and grab some food. He was he, he was enthusiastic about like, I want more. Uh, what else could I do? And I was like, well, I have this idea. You down? He's like, yeah, I'm in. And so I saw those qualities. So it, it takes him one dinner. That's amazing. He falls in love quick and hard. <laughs>
I are going to take this too. In literally. fairness, I probably was in yeah. love with Graham before that <laughs> because I was a fan of his content. Well, like it, like, you know what I mean? So like for me, he was like an idol of mine. He made a measurable difference in my life. I got my first credit card because of him. I opened up a high yield savings account because of him. I did all of these things because of him. So I'd say like probably that. And then him, him like finally calling me. I remember that was like a huge moment <laughs> so, for me. You know what I mean? Like, so, so that's a red flag. So y'all fit the criteria. Okay. So number one is you fell in love. He fell in love and he's got a huge ass red flag that you didn't know, or maybe didn't think about, which is that he was infatuated with you before he met you. Yeah. But Legit. I, but, but I think that that helps with dedication. That's like, hey, that's think, I don't think that, that. So it, it made me love flag. the idea of Graham rather than necessarily like Graham as a person. And uh, I, to me, they're not red Oh, flags. yeah, that, yeah, that's why it's a red flag, yeah. right? It's because you're falling. That's what infatuation right. is. It's falling in love with an idea instead of a person. But my point to y'all is if you look at successful relationships, I'm telling you, every relationship, including yours, has one red flag. But I wouldn't see either one of those as red flags. I think Other falling in love with would. the idea of someone know. is a red yeah. flag. And I would say well, my love grew a lot clear, deeper. Yeah. Clearly, clearly you didn't see it as a red flag, right? <laughs> I, I wouldn't, yeah. But, I but don't it, know. Yeah. I mean, but let's think now y'all are famous, right? Y'all are like rich and famous. And if some, I know it sounds like y'all are in relationships, like romantic relationships. Okay. Okay. So like if someone shows up and is like, oh my God. Jack, you are so awesome. You've changed my life. I love you so much. You're so handsome. That haircut is so fantastic. I can't get enough of you. Tell me what you want. I'll do anything, anything for you. Well, if they like the haircut, that's right? a... So like, <laughs> then that's it's, a red flag. So, so, so right? Because like, you kind of know yeah. that this person doesn't know the real you. And, and if she asked you on a, out on a date, would you go? I'm assuming you're heterosexual, but would you go? Uh, yeah, dude. Uh, of course, you how attractive. But that, I, but Here's I see thing. this is like, like Jack honest... is filtering. Jack is himself on the podcast. So people that come up to him and be like, I, I vibe with you. I like it. No, no, no. I dig let this. Me, then... Let me explain. He sees this very differently than I do. He says I need to pick from a pool of our audience because they know who I am, and I see that as not a because they thing. know now, who you are, now, but because your... they share similar values and they've watched you enough to be interested in what you have to offer. That's what I think. Not because they know who Jack is, but because they vibe and, and they resonate with what Jack says. I think I have a little less confidence in that because of the way that I felt towards you when we initially met. I was an, I, I, I idolized you. And literally, I said in the emails, I will do anything that you want me to do. I think I specified I will pick up Ramsey's cat poop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I will do But anything. I think those are the qualities. I would I would say the same thing. If I looked up to somebody and I want to work with them, I'll do anything. But yeah, it, I, there's okay. nothing, no task but below I fell me. in love with the impact that you made on my life. As far as falling in love with you as a character, I would say it took me a little bit because you were so different than anybody I've ever met before that I had to understand you before I felt like I could truly love you. You know? This and is I think healthy masculinity right it was, here, by the way. It was yeah. infatuation off the rip. And then after understanding who you are and then me coming to terms with, wow, this is somebody I've never met anybody like this before in my entire life. You're so direct. It was hard for me to, cause I've never been in like in a relationship like that where some people were so upfront. Um, and then finally, once I was like, this is just who he is. Cause I saw you treat other people mm -hmm. like that. Very upfront, very blunt. Then I had to come to terms with, okay, do, can I accept this person for them in their entirety or can I not? And I said, absolute F yes, without a doubt, I can. And I think that's when I fell in love with you. So let's right. understand a couple of things. First of all, you were in love with him before you even met him. You were infatuated by him. But once you got to know the real him, oh my God, it was so much better. And you fell so much more in love. And if we look at this right here, right? So this is, I know we're not talking about a sexual or romantic relationship, mm. but these qualities you will never find on a dating app. Y'all get this? Like, listen to the way that y'all are talking about each other, the way that you get to know each other. This is how a real bond forms.
But right? this, but the same thing that Jack met me could be how Jack meets a significant other. And that's my point. Yeah. That's exactly my point, right? So in, in you're asking what's wrong with dating. Yeah. The thing is, on a dating app, do you all get that the information on a dating app does not touch what we heard here today? And I don't even think you guys understand what we heard here today because y'all were participating, but your your listeners, like, holy shit, listening to y'all talk about each other is glorious. It gives me faith in humanity. And I think that the infatuation that I had with Graham off the rip was not enough to have a lifelong relationship with him. And once that started to diminish and I saw these other parts of his character that I was not used to, I had to then make that decision. Am I in love with this person or am I not? And, and so <laughs> that, that's completely consistent with, I mean, I, I know that everyone's memeing about this, but like yeah. for, for real, that's completely consistent with what I'm saying about relation, like romantic relationships too. It can start with a red flag of infatuation, but whether it withstands the test of time, a relationship must grow and evolve. And that's the other problem with dating apps is everyone's looking for a finished product. So what people don't understand is I'm trying to find the right person for a relationship. That is impossible. A relationship is created by two human beings. It is, it is not something that you fit someone into. Y'all get that? Because it's like organic. And just if we listen to y'all's relationship, right? And you can think about the romantic relationships you've had. You can even think about parental relationships, all relationships grow and evolve over time. And we don't really think about that in dating apps. We're looking for a finished product that will slot into my life. And even if you find someone who says they are willing to slot into your life, you will chances are you will fall out of love with them over some amount of time because they're not exciting you in some way, right? So sometimes like people will find exactly what they're looking for and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not. But for most of the people that I've talked to who have found successful relationships over dating apps, it's like, yeah, there was enough to get in the door. And what I discovered was so far beyond what the app showed me. Because there's a fundamental data analytics problem, which is that dating apps cannot collect or share the actual information that correlates with a successful relationship. And that even is even more complex because what a successful relationship requires evolves over time. Relationships need, I work with my wife, she's CEO, she's my boss, right? That sounds very awkward, but it works really well. We had kids together. Me and her dating a celibate monk is version 1.0, right? And then it's like not celibate person and it's loser. That's a different relationship. Then it's medical student. Then it's like faculty at Harvard Medical School. Now it's influencer. And then she's my boss. There's so many different relationships there that a real relationship is not something that you can capture on a piece of something. Mm -hmm. And they evolve and grow over time. But a good barometer for the health or success, pre predictive success of a relationship would be those four things that you shared. Yeah, so I don't think I shared all four. So no, you went to two. Uh, connectedness, I'm sorry, um, 90 minutes, mm -hmm. um, shared emotional experience, free of daily hassles, and I'm forgetting what the fourth thing is, but there's a fourth. And then what about going from a healthy relationship then to a healthy marriage? Keeping the excitement, keeping the spark, keeping the interest. But I take it you can't limit it to 90 minutes anymore. <laughs> um, so it's, so I'll answer this question. I'm tempted to answer the question the same way I answered the last one is how do y'all keep it fresh? <laughs> no. yeah. um, so now we co come full circle to tantric sex. No, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, which because it's not sexual in nature, y'all can do and it's not. It's no homo, I swear. No, okay. But let's <laughs> let's understand a couple things, okay? So the first thing is to understand that a relationship evolves over time, which we've already talked about. 
but the second thing, the most important thing that I think transitions into marriage, I don't know if it's necessarily marriage or like from the short term to the long term relationship is that early on you have so much neurochemistry working in your favor. So you're excited by this person, there's novelty, there's attractiveness, the sex is new. We sort of know that in a default state, the amount of arousal that you feel with a new partner is greater than what you feel with like a partner over time. That's in the default state. Now, a lot of people will interpret this as like, this is a biological truth. The core feature of human beings that a lot of people who are like, this is the biological truth, the core feature of human beings is that we are not bound by our biology. We're the only species on the planet that does things that are biologically, we, we're not, we have consciousness and we have the ability to shape and change our internal environment. Now it's possible animals can do this, but we don't have really any evidence of that. We have some evidence of maybe self-awareness, but like a dog can't wake up one day and decide like, I no longer want to eat this thing. Like they're just not capable of that. They can be trained, but that internal process isn't possible. So we're not defined by our biology as human beings. And celibacy is a great example of that, right? So like people will be willfully celibate and it's actually like works. So I think the biggest thing that is required is you have to understand that when you first start dating someone, things are gonna be easy because the neurochemistry is in your favor. You're gonna feel hornier. You're gonna feel more excited. You're learning about this person. There's gonna be a lot of stuff that's working for you. So the factors work for you and work for the relationship. Over time, what starts to happen is you have to start working. You have to start doing the work. So over time, what feels natural, right? When y'all got together and the first time y'all had dinner and it was like, oh my God, this is so natural. And like, this is a fit that was made in heaven. And over time, that wears out, right? And then y'all have to start putting work into maintaining the relationship. So I think this is where a lot of people fall short is that relationship feels easy at the beginning and then people will break up because it's starting to feel hard. This used to be so easy. And that's what happens to everybody. It gets harder for everyone all the time. It's the people who recognize this is getting hard and this requires my effort and now I'm gonna have to put intention into it. And once they solve those problems, that actually makes the relationship stronger. So when, when things get tough, like some people are like, this is not what I signed up for because it's very different from what it was early, right? Early on, you've got your honeymoon phase and you're willing to overlook all the red flags. But at some point, case in point of celibacy, right? There was a red flag. There was also failure on my part, a second red flag. But at some point, those things have to change. And I think the biggest uh, problem that I see in modern relationships is this attitude that like, I don't have to be what someone else wants me to be. Like I am perfect the way that I am. If you don't, if, if you don't, if you can't accept me at my worst, you don't accept, uh, you don't deserve me at my best. So there's like this weird attitude of like independence and radical acceptance, which I think leads to toxicity. Mm. And it's like, yeah, sorry. Like this is just the way I am. Screw you. If you don't like it, you can leave. But where do you find the balance in that between accepting a person for who they are and saying, ah, this is just me versus knowing if that's something you need to work on? So it's beautiful because I don't think you need balance. I think what you need is both. Sure. So let's understand something about acceptance. So people will say like, you know, so acceptance is accepting where you are and growth is about where you want to go. So the pitfalls here are that some people don't actually accept their partner. So based on, so a simple example is like, let's say like body count, okay? So whether it's high body count or low body count, like I don't care, I'm not placing a value judgment, but some people will say, you know, you've had like, so this is especially true of like men who have fewer sexual partners and especially substantially fewer sexual partners than uh, their female partners. Mm -hmm. So they will feel insecure about it and they won't be able to accept. So there's some kind of like, even though they're dating, 
they're saying accepting things, internally they don't accept. And internally they feel resentment. They feel shame. They feel some amount of like, you know, like I should have been better or whatever. I, mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever. So if you kind of look at that in that moment, this partner, even if you're dating this person, you're not accepting them. Now, that's one thing, but change over time doesn't mean staticness. In fact, it's the opposite. So if I'm working with someone who is, let's say, an alcoholic, the first step to change is acceptance. As long as you're in denial, you can't accept, you, as long as you're in denial, you can't grow at all, right? So it, with Alcoholics Anonymous, it's like, hi, my name is Alok, I'm an alcoholic. They start with acceptance. So I don't think that it's a balance between the two. I think one actually leads to the other. The problem is that we've started to think about acceptance as like carte blanche to do whatever you want. That's not what acceptance is. Acceptance is acknowledgement of the present circumstances. And then once you acknowledge what the present circumstances are, like in my case, like I realize, like, holy shit, this girl is not giving up on me. She deserves better, right? And there's two things that can happen when a dude has that thought. Mm -hmm. Number one is, oh my God, you're going to leave me, right? You're going to leave me and you're going to find someone better because you deserve mm -hmm. better and you don't deserve me. The second is, I'm going to become better. I'm going to become what you deserve. And it's when people start doing that, when both parties do that in the relationship, I'm going to be what you deserve. I'm going to grow for the sake of this relationship. I'm going to get better. It's not accept me at my worst. Uh, if you can't accept me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. It's that I'm grateful that you're accepting me at my worst and you deserve nothing less than the best 24-7 and that's what I'm moving towards. Mm. But you cannot do that unless you accept that there's a part of you that's shitty here and now. If we were to draft up a framework for someone to live like the most meaningful, fulfilling, possible life, now I know probably frameworks aren't the most productive thing because you can't really apply that to everybody. Um, let's just say, this is what my take is and I wanna hear what your thoughts are on it. There are three things, which would be a consistent sleep schedule, diet, and exercise. I think those three things are extremely important. Like those are the things that you need to nail, right? And then after that, I think that you can then go on to like more non-physical things such as like practicing acceptance, practicing surrender and relinquishing desire, right? And then from there, potentially going on to the next thing, which would be crafting your environment to be conducive uh, or conductive or whatever for who you are, like the things that you, like we discussed earlier in this conversation. Would you agree with that in those steps or would you say that's a little bit too um, rigid? I don't agree with those steps. In, in a few moments, I think you're not going to agree with them either. So bear with me, okay? So you said, what's the foundation of your thing? I would say physical health, so like exercising, uh, getting a consistent sleep schedule, and proper nutrition. Okay, and then what's step two? Step two would then be the non-physical things, uh, which I think could reasonably follow getting the, the foundation, right? Which would be- uh, Relinquishing desire. Relinquishing desire, practicing okay. surrender. So let's say, let's take a case, okay? Yeah. So- and I apologize if my answer was arrogant, but so let's say that I have trouble sleeping. Mm -hmm. How do I take care? How do I get a consistent sleep schedule? How do I get a consistent diet? And how do I get consistent exercise? Well, the reasonable answer would be you probably need to exercise more throughout the day to make yourself tired enough to go to bed at night. Yeah, but how do I do that? Exercise yeah. would be the other pillar. So it'd be like- I know, but how do I get myself? So like most people don't exercise regularly, don't sleep a full night and don't eat a healthy Oh, diet. so you're saying how do you get the motivation to start going? Yeah, right? So you're saying those are found, how is that foundation built? Because we're presuming that it's not built, right? So people aren't okay. doing this. Okay, interesting. Okay, so I have heard plenty of different answers to such a question, which I think the most reasonable one would be just, you just kind of just have to do it. 
and then doing it is hard. Just have to do it is not a how. How do I do it? How do you go to sleep at a regular time and how do yeah. you exercise? So you gave me a, a how for sleep. Right. So, so you gave me a how for the sleep is the exercise regularly. Right. right. Setting standards for yourself. So I, a lot of people set standards for myself. Shit, I set standards. But they don't for, follow them. Why not? Probably because they have a history of not following them. Okay. So where does it start? When the consequence of not following your standards does not uh, properly, is not enough to deter you from not following your standards in the first place. What is the subjective experience of that person? So let me put it a different way. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't someone eat healthy? Let's say I go out to a restaurant. I'm like, I should order a salad, but instead I get a burger. Right. I think Why? a lot of it has to do with the consequences not being enough. Okay. So, but then the consequences aren't enough, right? So the consequences don't change. Right. So how am I going to change that? You can impose your own consequences, right? But then I guess, how can you follow that? Yeah. So right. wh which part of me imposes consequences? The thinking brain. So here's the crazy thing. Relinquishing desire is not what comes after exercise. Relinquishing desire is literally what is required for exercise. <laughs> okay. I don't want to exercise. I want to sit at home and play video games. Conquering that desire is literally how you get to the gym. I don't want to go to bed. Conquering that desire is how you go to bed. Okay, to use your own philosophy against you now, Please. how would you then get the, what tools do you use in order to relinquish desire? It starts with awareness. Okay, so how, how do you become aware? You pay attention. How do you pay attention? Close your eyes. Okay. No, right now. Okay, what are you aware of? Your voice. Okay. I'd say my hungry stomach. I would say my knee bouncing. That's how you do it. It's okay. So I have become aware. Graham, you do this too. Close your eyes. What are you aware of? My eyes being closed. Okay. What else? Uh, your voice, me sitting in the chair, um, paranoia about the time. Um, that's what I'm aware of. Okay, so now we are aware. So I want y'all to notice something. Open your eyes. So what happened to the things that Graham was aware of over the stretch of the awareness exercise? What so what happened? happened is he became aware of more and more things mm. and also subtler and subtler things. So it started with the physical, it became the mental. And then if he kept on noticing that awareness, he could even discover the origins of the paranoia. He could discover all kinds of things as he just increases his awareness. So don't be distracted. No, it's sure. to give yourself time to. Yeah, I think both of those yeah. are true, right? So don't be distracted. What mm -hmm. I would say is don't be distracted is hard because you don't control your distraction. What you control is your intention towards awareness. Interesting. Okay. Right. So, okay. So it was kind of like a little bit of like a conscious, like meditative state, a little bit in a sense, right? Awareness. Awareness. Consciousness. Okay. Now you said actually on something that it doesn't matter if you are meditating all the time. It matters the quality of the, not meditating, but let's say just say awareness, right? The quality of the awareness. How do you increase the quality of your awareness? So I think the biggest mistake that people make with not increasing the quality of their awareness is that they follow a metric for meditation. So they say, I'm going to meditate for 15 minutes. I'm going to install an app on my phone. I'm going to set my timer. I'm going to force myself to sit down and meditate, which means I'm going to observe my breath. 
But what they're doing is checking a box. They're actually fulfilling a set of external conditions, which is closing my eyes, using the timer. This is meditation. Meditation is not that. Meditation is awareness. So literally, it is being aware, right? So what are you aware of? You can start with that question. And this is why we have techniques, right? So certain techniques will, so I'll give you all like, this is a technique is going to work maybe better for you than for you. But if you chant Om, you know how to chant Om? No, just Om. Okay. That. So Om is chanted very simply. Okay. So I'm going to give you meditation technique. Is that cool? Yeah. Okay. So Om is not Om. It's A, U, and M. So all it is is your mouth fully open, ah, uh, and then transition, open it as big as you can, ah, uh, uh, and then transition slowly to closed. Uh, Perfect. That is literally what OM is. And this is why people are confused because they think OM is OM. It's not, many people, if you look at the more authentic religious traditions, they will have A-U-M. So if you chant OM, you chant OM seven times. And I want you to notice where you feel vibration in your body. Am I supposed to do this right no, now? No, not okay. now. Okay. Just yeah, in the future. Thinking, right? Retention. So people can do this at home. Right? And it's really simple because you know how to chant home. It's perfect. Just start with your mouth open. Exhale. And then close your mouth gradually over time. And you're done. And where do I feel vibrations? Where do you feel vibrations? Right? Okay. So for someone who's a vata like you, you're curious. You want answers. Right? So if I give you an answer, what are you going to do with it? It's probably... Question. Test it and question it. And right, or reject it or compare it. You're going to cite something else, but what about this? But right. what about this? But what about this? That shit ain't going to work for you. I can give you all the answers. It's not going to be enough. You'll enjoy it intellectually, but it's not going to change. No, it's not good. Yeah. That's funny, yeah. You'll you'll get, it's intellectual masturbation is what it is. It's like, it feels good. It but It is. It really is. Yeah, but no one's going to get pregnant right. this way, right? Mm -hmm. We really want to change. So then what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you, and then if you're motivated, you can do it. If you're not motivated, you don't have to do it. If you're not motivated, you can go read a thousand books on motivation and find your motivation. You can do whatever the fuck you want with it. If you do this practice and you observe where the vibration is, you will discover something. And this is how we cultivate awareness. So depending on the person, depending on their temperament, depending on their cognition, depending on their personality, this is the other problem with meditation is that everyone teaches the same thing because there was a master and how did the master come up with the technique? The master came up with the technique because he understood the stuff or she understood the stuff. And she individualized particular techniques for their disciples. And then what happens is the disciples learn the technique and they mechanically teach it, which is why everyone is doing mindfulness and no one is getting enlightened. So what we do to increase your awareness is just do this, just observe. And as curiosity for you will help because now you're looking for something. And if I give you something to look for, then your mind is going to be focused. Okay. So we have to practice awareness via mm -hmm. probably meditation. That's the simplest way, the right. best way. But if it doesn't work for you, you don't have to do it that and way. There's awareness in other ways, like when you get into that flow state. Sure. Right. Uh, yeah, okay. Right. Okay. Uh, and then that is what could then spur, hopefully, like you, you realize internally that certain things would be better for you to do, and then you don't have the desire to continue doing the things that are negative. Beautiful. Okay. Right. And how did you formulate that? Because you've done it. You realize that you used to have desires that controlled you. And then you had an internal revelation that changed your behavior. It's not willpower. It's understanding. And that is why you ask people questions, right? Yes. So another good example of awareness raising is psychotherapy. Right, so we're asking questions in a particular way that raises someone's awareness. Like if you're working with a narcissist and they don't think, they're not aware of other people's internal emotional state. So by helping them become aware of that, 
then they're like, oh, wow, like this is crazy. Like we can cure narcissism. Like we can cure it. It's crazy. Like permanently? Yeah, absolutely. Is it just giving them a set of tools? I thought they were fully atrophied, that, those parts of their brain, like no. that you cannot connect those synapses. No, 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 no. So if you look at something like borderline personality disorder, which I think is very similar to narcissism, um, narcissism is more common in men. Borderline personality disorder is more common in women. I want to say 95 to 99% of women with borderline personality disorder are cured 16 years after diagnosis. 50% two years after. By what, real life or by psychotherapy? Both. So a lot of people no longer qualify hmm. because as they, there's all kinds of nuances to so that. So maybe but. the nature of the, the illness in the first place is that it's transitory, right? It's not that it's transitory, it's personality. Right, so, and does personality change over time? Yeah, yeah. 100%, that's it. Can you cure depression? The scientific answer is probably not, and we don't know. My instinct is absolutely. For 51 plus percent of people is what, what my gut tells me. I tend so, to agree with that. So my clinical experience, and that's based on clinical experience. So what I mean by that is how many people have walked into my office qualifying for a mood disorder like major depressive disorder, and how many of them, after completing treatment, are sustainably able to not qualify for that disorder without, with, without ongoing support. So if they complete a course of psychotherapy for like two years, let's say, or medication or whatever, and then like five years later, if you measure them, do they have any depressive episodes? I would say 51% of people, 51 plus percent of people don't. And even if you look at the data on depression, the majority of people who have major depressive disorder, I think the, not the majority, but the plurality of them have only one. Hearing yeah. him debate Hormozy on this would be insane. Oh be man, if we could. Who's yeah. Hormozy? He's, He's the guy that's coming guest. on. Alex Hormozy, he is a amazing. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You want to say where people could find you? Sure. Besides so, the description. Um, I'm Dr. K. So I run an organization called Healthy Gamer HG. HealthyGamer.gg. Our YouTube channel is HealthyGamer underscore GG. I think those are like the best places to find us. We're on all the platforms, but YouTube, Twitch, and website, this archaic thing. Beautiful. And thank you all so much. Cool. All links thank down really below. Thank it. you guys so much for watching. Thank you for coming on and making Thanks, this friend. trip out here. That means a lot. I wish we had an extra hour. I wish we had extra several yeah. hours. If you guys want to see another one, just comment down below. Just comment down below. We'll make if it you happen. Make it to okay. The very end. Just let us know. We read all the comments and I mean, we do a part two. Yeah, and depending on what y'all want for part two. So the other thing I'll ask y'all to comment is if y'all want to y'all want to go more solo and y'all want to dive in, we can do that. But that I'll leave okay. up to y'all. That'd be Sounds good. Thank, Thank you guys. guys. So, Till next time.